And yes, and let's do this. Can everybody see that? <coughs> yes. All right. So I guess we'll get started. My name is Henry Garrett. Uh, I guess I should start with where I grew up. Uh, my father was a Air Force Colonel and we were stationed at Walker Air Force Base in Roswell, New Mexico. I grew up there. And in fact, Roswell, as you well know, was the first spaceport. It's where Robert H. Goddard did all of his original research. In fact, as a kid growing up, uh, I, my, some of my sponsors were people that actually rode their ponies out to spot the uh, rockets that Goddard would launch. Uh, Lindbergh, Guggenheim, all those people used to come to Roswell to watch the launches. Uh, perhaps you've heard of other reasons why Roswell's famous. Um, I was born nine months after the other event, so you can draw your own conclusion. Anyway, I, as I entered the science fairs early on in my career and I started building telescopes, that got me to the attention of Rice University, where I went and spent eight years getting my, ultimately getting my PhD. While there, uh, I was sent to the Arctic to study the aurora. I was an early storm chaser for several years. I drove all around Arizona, uh, parking under lightning storms and recovering lightning. That becomes important in the discussions today because it turns out that two of the jobs that I had was I was the chief optical inspector for the Hubble Aberration Recovery Program and actually followed the fellow who busted the telescope, the Hubble Space Telescope. I followed him for two years and monitored everything he did and gave reports back to headquarters on everything that he did. Fortunately, we were able to fix it. The other thing is that my talk today Part of it is on uh, spacecraft charging. The reason I got the spacecraft charging role was because of my lightning research. They felt that for some reason that lightning was somehow related to arc discharges on spacecraft. And so I was appointed the project scientist for the spacecraft charging at, at high altitudes satellite called SCATHA. So that's how I basically got my start was at Rice. Uh, I went immediate, I was drafted into the Vietnam War and I went to work at what was then called the Air, Air Force Cambridge Research Labs, which became the Air Force Geophysics Labs, which became Air Force Research Labs up in Boston, where I met my wife. And uh, I, while there, I was the uh, top scientist in the Air Force for my research on spacecraft charging. Uh, coming out uh, off active duty after uh, six years, I went into the reserves and uh, stayed in the reserves for 30 years and ended up as the uh, head of the uh, Space Division uh, Reserve Program uh, as a full colonel. I was also stationed at the uh, Phillips Lab in Albuquerque and at uh, the Rocket Propulsion Lab out in Edwards. And uh, therefore I've been at pretty much all the space labs for the Air Force. I joined JPL in 1980 and I was there until uh, this year in January when I finally retired after 43 years. And uh, at JPL, I was the chief technologist and lead for space environments and effects and mitigation methods for JPL mission, all JPL missions. And I was responsible for defining the environments for most of the missions that we flew and uh, helping with the testing and uh, evaluation of the spacecraft missions. Now, to give you a history of this course, 
when I first came out here to JPL, uh, my reserve assignment was at uh, space space division part time, and working with uh, uh, one of the young officers, Ed Dzeski, we put together this course that you'll be seeing today, and that was starting about 1980. I've been teaching this course throughout the Air Force, and then ultimately throughout JPL, and ultimately throughout NASA for the last uh, 40 years. And uh, it's a two-day course. It uh, was picked up by my uh, friend of mine who you may have heard of, Daniel Hastings. I believe he's currently the president of AIAA. He and I did a book on this called Spacecraft Environments and Effects. And uh, you can get that through Cambridge Press, look up Hastings and Garrett. So there's a lot of pedigree to what you're gonna be seeing today. Um, almost everything in there uh, I've either physically worked on or was responsible for the details. I highly recommend the, uh, the book, the course is currently taught at MIT. And uh, also uh, I'm the co-author of the guidelines for doing spacecraft charging. Uh, you can get that book also, that's Garrett and uh, Whittlesey. You can uh, get copies of that through uh, Caltech where it's published. So let's get started. First of all, what's the outline? What are we gonna talk about today? Well, first of all, I'm going to go into why do we care about space the environment and its effects. Then I'm going to pr provide you with a process overview that I think will show you how we're going to go through this. Basically, I define you define the environments, you define the interactions, and then you do trade-offs to see what your mission can afford by way testing or by uh, design corrections to how to take care of the mitigation of the effects. Now, I'm only going to talk about radiation and spacecraft charging today. Uh, you'll see a full list of all the different environments that I normally teach uh, in the next couple of view graphs. So, and I'll also conclude with some references uh, and go back over what we're talking about. So here's the introduction. Why do we really care? Well, bottom line is space is a lively place. It's growing like mad. And we're with the CubeSats, we're putting, we're hanging stuff up there on the very edge of being able to operate in space. And so you need to have at least a rudimentary knowledge of all the different types of effects. I can tell you one example, the, uh, the Planetary Society launched their uh, solar cell sail into space a couple of years back and immediately it turned off. What had happened was there was a, what was called a single event upset. They waited a few days and sure enough, another single event upset came on and turned it back on. So there's a lot of complexity that you don't expect. For example, the PCs that they fly in, early PCs that they flew in space are having the same problem. A single event upset would turn the uh, PC on or turn and put it into uh, check mode and it would just sit there and uh, try to figure out what was wrong with it. And so the, Everything is affected by that. And indeed, um, one of the big things is that, as you know, right now we're going into the peak of the solar cycle. And Quebec back in 1989 was knocked out by a surge in the Aurora Borealis, which coupled into their power grid and blew out the big transformers. And they were without power for several days in the middle of the, middle of the winter. So, there's very practical reasons for knowing what the space environment is and how it can affect your systems. I'm going to go be primarily interested in uh, electronic effects, but we'll also mention people effects too as we go through here. So this is what 
we know this this chart probably needs to be updated, but I think it's probably just about it's still valid. And I think the unknown is more known now. But at least twenty to thirty percent of all uh, in-flight failures are related in one way or the other to the space environment. Probably more because of the, of the unknown. But you can see there's electronic effects, electromechanical effects, mechanical effects, and then of course the environment. And so the environment plays a fairly substantial uh, role in causing satellites to fail. In fact, here's the insurance policies. We've, we've had a number of people come by our institution and to AIAA meetings and to uh, American Geophysical Union meetings and give talks on the issues associated with the space environment and the insurance problems that that causes. You can see here that um, uh, in the third, if you read along the bottom there, you can see in 30 years, apparently 4.2 billion in premiums have been paid and 3.4 billion in claims have been paid. So you can see it's a huge, huge effect on the uh, capitalization and the uh, expense of flying spacecraft. So at least give you an idea of how, it, how across the board it's related to the effects on our spacecraft designs. First of all, as I said before, the space environment impacts everything from in, uh, that operates in the Earth's environment or in space uh, near the Earth and, and in planetary space, particularly at Jupiter, as you'll find out as we go through. Spacecraft, of course, when you lose one, it can be extremely expensive, particularly at geosynchronous orbit where the biggies are. And the space environment itself has been studied since before they even launched the first rockets. There were estimates of what the spacecraft would charge to, for example, by the Russians as early as uh, 56, 57, right before the first launches. But with careful design and testing, you can actually do make great strides towards limiting the effects of the space environment. Give you one silly effect on the right there, that's the prototype of the early space station solar arrays on the top. And that's what it was supposed to look like. They flew it in space and they forgot to take into account the, the thermal environment in space and the different coefficients of expansion of the metal and the silicon. And it, if you look, you can see that it warped right out. They had this in the shuttle bay, they stuck it out and immediately the thing warped. And that scared them, as you can imagine. So just about everything can go wrong. And uh, we'll go through a lot of the silly things that happen today. But here's the, the basic model of why we're going to talk about today. First thing you have to do is you have to describe, describe the environment. Then you have to make environmental estimates for the orbit that you're going to be flying in. Then you need to devise requirements for that environment. The big problem comes with testing. Uh, if you over-test, you can actually damage the satellite and build in satellite failure. And that's something that all project managers are deathly afraid of, is over-test. Under-test, however, goes the other direction. If you don't do enough testing, or if you do the wrong testing, you when you go on orbit, you're going to have design failures. I'll uh, give you a, a, a silly example. I was sitting up in, the, in my office uh, near one of the, the big test chambers at JPL, when I heard this loud noise, I ran down the end of the hall and they had been shaking the uh, antenna for Galileo. And it, they, over, they over tested it and it broke. So they only had one backup. And so they didn't want to test the backup. Well, uh, the backup 
went back and forth to the Cape a number of times, and the backup antenna for Galileo had to open, and uh, it, it was a standard opening procedure. And so uh, what JPL did was they made sure that they had twice as much inner, uh, motor could crank it open or crank it closed. So they re-rigged it so, because they were worried about uh, problems opening it so that, that they had twice the power to open it. Well, they got on orbit and they come to find out it had been sitting for so long and smooth metal, if you have two smooth metal surfaces together, they'll fuse uh, by molecular adhesion. And sure enough, it, had, it adhered. And even at two, uh, twice the strength, they could not open the antenna. So we almost lost the Galileo mission. We worked, we had, fortunately we had, as you'll see, substantial workarounds. We were able to record the data and send it back through one of the high gain and uh, low gain antennas and save the mission. But the bottom line there is because of over-testing, they had, uh, one of the key pieces of equipment, namely being able to open the antenna, failed. And see, it's very tricky, even for the best of us, how we do this. And so let's look at what I call my integrated approach that I push, to J, push at JPL. Uh, the first one is step one. You have to define the environments that you're going to fly into and the interactions. Now, these are for on the lower left there, I'm, I'll go in a little more detail these in a minute, but you can see I've I did this for the Europa, the Pluto Express, and the solar probe missions, which of the different interactions were critical and which of the environments were important. You can see from the lettering. The next step is to do consider the design options that you have. Um, you can do shielding, you can do uh, you can do you can do interact. I'm sorry, the, the plot's wrong. I'll show you the right one in just a second. But it's interactions versus the design options, and then the on on the lower right over there are the design uh, the design options versus the different factors. Now let's look at those in a little more detail. First of all, step one: environments versus interactions. On the left, you see the environments, and then you see the interactions. All of these interactions, I. I eventually cover in this course. Today, we're just going to be looking at the spacecraft charging and the uh, total ionizing dose, single event upsets, and latch up, surface charging and internal charging. And you can see the different environments and where the X's are, the big X's are, are where the main environment is that affects those. For example, galactic cosmic rays and trapped radiation and solar proton events have a major effect on single event upsets. Latch up, which is one of the major concerns for most spacecraft that's hidden in the background, is primarily caused by solar proton events. That's where you create a sneak circuit uh, as the charged particle passes through and it actually shorts out the device. Now, this is the different types of um, interactions. And you can see across the top again, the interactions and on the left, of the, this is the design options that you can that you can consider. For example, for radiation, obviously for total ionizing dose, you can add shielding, or you can position things on the inside of the spacecraft rather than on the outside, or you can change the trajectory so that you don't go through the Earth's radiation belts or through Ju Jupiter's radiation belts. That's, for example, what Juno did. It's in a polar orbit so that it skips over the radiation belts and then comes down near the planet. And at least until the, towards the end of the mission, it doesn't have much radiation effects. 
Likewise with internal charging, which is basically related to high energy electrons. You can see that you can put shielding, you can do, change the material properties so the materials are more conductive, etc. And so what I recommend doing is after you've decided on what the environments that are critical and what their effects are, you come over here and look at the effects and then you consider all the different ways that you can mitigate them. Finally, you have to take into account all those shield, all those design options have, provide, have effects on the cost of your mission, the weight of your mission, the power and complexity of the mission. For example, on uh, both Galileo and Cassini, in particular on Cassini, we put a baby buggy bumper. Uh, they were afraid that micrometeoroids would penetrate the, the uh, thrusters and make holes in them. And then when you fired the thruster, the, the main engines, it would burn a hole out and, and destroy the spacecraft. I had to do the calculations for those. And I couldn't rule out the fact that a small micrometeoroid might put a hole through the engine. So what they did was to avoid the problem altogether, they put a, uh, if you go down and you can see it in the LA Science Museum, they put a dome over it, a uh, 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 shield dome and they open the dome when they go to fire the engine and they close it when they, when, they're not, when they don't so that it was protected from micrometeoroids. But that adds great complexity and affects the reliability. So you have to take all those things into account. Likewise with shielding, shielding is very heavy and can drive your spacecraft to such a point that you can't fly it because it weighs too much to put that much shielding for the Jovian environment. And again, all of these things have cost implications in your program. And then there's special issues such as RTGs, the radioisotope thermal generators. You have to consider what the, all the, the problems with launch approval. We had big problems with Galileo and ultimately with Cassini. Um, went down uh, to the Cape and there were protesters down there that wouldn't let our, our the families go on to the facility because they were they accused us of threatening the, all the lives of people in Florida if this shuttle broke up and dumped plutonium all over the area. So you, ha you, you have special issues that can be really weird and you, uh, different groups get, uh, get concerns. So let's go start with the environments. Uh, now here's just, I wanna make sure that you understand the units that we're gonna be talking about today. First of all, the fundamental unit of energy. Typically for the CGS system, it's ergs. That's grams centimeters squared per second squared. That's mass times velocity squared. That's what energy is. If you go to the MKS units, the joule is one kilogram meter squared per second squared. Now you're going to see, rather than those two units, typically you're gonna see us talk in terms of an electron volt. That's the energy that electron will pick up dropping through one volt electric field. One charge of one charge electron falls through a one volt field. That's the energy that it'll get. Notice that it's very small. Um, it's 10 to the minus 12th ergs, 10 to the minus 19th joules. Well, you'd say, well, that's not very important. Well, I want you to stop and realize that the um, energy of one EV is equivalent to 10,000 degrees Kelvin. And uh, if that doesn't startle you a little bit, then <laughs> you're, not, you're not catching on. An electron volt is the standard unit of energy that we, we, will, we will be talking about typically through this 
uh, effort. So now what is the unit of dosage? Dosage is the amount of energy that you deposit in the gram, into a mass, uh, a unit mass. So it's so much energy deposited in a, in a gram, for example, for, uh, and you have to specify the material, in this case, silicon. So one rad equals 100 ergs per gram in silicon. A gray is a unit that people are more and more often using. Uh, we still use, stick with the rads in my profession in the radiation effects on spacecraft. But it's one joule per kilogram. And you can see that one gray is 100 rads or 10 to the fourth ergs per gram, and get, which is fairly energetic. And that's what heats up things, by the way, is, is the dosage causes heating of the uh, material and can and as you'll see cause some severe damage in materials in space. Now the next unit that we need to consider is flux or intensity. Actually intensity is the better term but most people use the word flux. Uh, flux is the number per unit time, I'm going to read this out so that you understand, number per unit time of something. Uh, let's say it's rocks, particles, numbers, whatever it is. Uh, Per unit time of energy per unit energy, unit time of energy per unit energy interval DE in solid angle and the solid angle, I'll show you a picture of that in just a second, in direction theta and phi and incident on a surface area perpendicular to the direction of the observation. Now let me show you what that looks like. There's your unit area down there and what we're worried about is a particle coming through, passing through that area. The particle can be anything from a photon to a rock to an electron, gamma ray, anything. And that's what we're talking about here is if you notice N is the normal to the, the surface, theta and phi would be around in the, the, the direction around the normal and theta is the direction uh, to the normal. And the delta omega, is the solid angle and U is the unit vector. Whoops. So anyway, here's some typical examples of units that we're going to use for protons or electrons. Particles per square centimeter per second per steradian per keV. And heavy ions, for example, we usually have to take into account the mass or the how many nucleons there are, protons and, and neutrons in the nucleus. And you'll get how many particles per square meter per second per stair radian per MeV per nucleon. And those are the typical units that we'll be talking about in this uh, talk. RAD, by the way, stands for radiation absorbed dose. Okay, so now the now it gets I'm gonna get a little complex. This is about as complex as it's gonna get uh, through the talk, the next couple of slides. One of the most common ways that we discuss particle distributions is using what's called a Maxwell-Boltzmann plasma distribution. And basically what it says is that the distribution function, which is how many particles per cubic centimeter, per cubic uh, uh, dimension before versus cubic velocity. So we got six dimensions. We got X, Y, Z, and then we have VX, VY, VZ, the velocity dimensions. And that's represented here for one dimension as the number, the mass, 
of the particle divided by the kinetic energy, or the, I'm sorry, the thermal energy, T, K is a constant, to the exponential one half mv squared, that's the energy, again, uh, the kinetic energy over the thermal energy. And then notice this an exponential. This is a very common function, I'll show you a plot of it in just a second, that we use to describe plasmas and high energy particles. Now the number density is something that you all can identify with. The number density you integrate over velocity space, the three dimensions of velocity space, you get the number density. That's particles per cubic volume. Now we do number flux, we're gonna integrate over uh, velocity space, but we're gonna multiply it by velocity. So it's a number density times velocity. That's the number flux to first order. And you can see on the right, if you integrate that expression up above, you get the number of particles times the square root of the energy uh, divided by the, the mass of the particle. So you get velocity. So that's units on the right there are number times velocity. Energy density, we like to talk about also. And energy density is basically the, uh, again, the distribution function in integrated over velocity space times one half mv squared, which is the energy. There you can see the m over two v squared. That gives you three halves nkt on the right over there. And uh, basically it's the, uh, the energy, the number of particles per unit volume times their energy. And finally, we get the energy flux. That's how much energy flows through a surface. Uh, again, it's you take the uh, distribution function and you multiply it by the uh, by, uh, velocity space and v cubed. So you've got it, one half mv squared times the velocity. That's the so you're doing the amount of flux that goes with a given velocity. You can see on the right over there, it's number density times three halves power of the uh, uh, energy, which comes out to V cubed. Now come down here to the bottom. You can define a temperature that goes up in that upper equation up there, the KT up there. And that's, that's produced by dividing energy density by number density. That would be the normal way you do it. Turns out you have to add the two thirds in. Uh, and that shows you that you get the uh, number, you get the energy density divided by number density gives you the mean energy. But you can also design uh, define a mean energy or RMS energy as I like to call it by dividing the number flux into the energy flux. And that's on the right over there. And these two temperatures do not necessarily degree, agree unless it's a monoenergetic, mono uh, I'm sorry, a, a single uh, Maxwellian distribution. Now let's see what, those, what that means in reality. These are typical distribution functions from geosynchronous orbit, which we'll be discussing later for the plasma environment from uh, about 10, MV, 10 EV all the way up to one MeV for the electrons, same for the proton distributions. You can see the distribution function. Again, notice the units, seconds cubed, kilometers to the sixth. So that gives you um, velocity, velocity and cubed and number density. I'm sorry, uh, and gives you the um, spatial coordinates. So spatial coordinates are cubed and the velocity cubed 
That's the unit. Seconds cubed over kilometers to the sixth. Same thing for the protons on the right. Now I've plotted here uh, in the dashed line is a Maxwellian fit. And that's actual data that you're looking at there from geosynchronous orbit. And so that's what you can see is that the, the ma single Maxwellian does a moderately good job of fitting it. But if you do two Maxwellians, that's two different temperatures and two different um, uh, masses, two, uh, you get the second fit. Obviously fitting four parameters is better than fitting two parameters. It works particularly well for the protons as you can see on the right. The dashed line again is the single Maxwellian and the dotted line is the two Maxwellian fit. And you can see it does a much better job of fitting the data. So that's what we use. We use these distribution functions to try to define the uh, uh, distribution of particles in the environment. Now let's start looking at the different particles that we need to consider. Galactic cosmic rays, as you probably know, come from supernovas and, all and black holes, all kinds of high energy sources out in the, out in the galaxy. And back in 1896, they discussed, as you remember, they were beginning to discover radioactivity. And Henri Becquerel uh, said, well, if it's, they see a lot of radiation on the surface of the earth. Maybe if we get away from the earth where there's a lot of radioactive materials, it'll go down. So first thing he did, uh, uh, Hess here, uh, Victor Hess decided to do a test. So he got in a balloon and he, went up in space. Initially, the radioactivity started to diminish, indicating that a lot of the radiation was coming from the ground. And then all of a sudden it went way up. And uh, we find that it peaks about 20 to 30 kilometers. Uh, and I'll show you in a second why that's so. But so what is the, they realized that this stuff must be coming from outer space. And that's back in 1912. Here's what's happening. A single ultra high energy cosmic ray coming, uh, proton, electron, uh, proton or heavy ion, typically electrons, will, I'll show you those, but they're only a minor contributor. Uh, cosmic rays are primarily heavy ions and protons. One of those particles comes in as it approaches the Earth, it starts to see the atmospheric density of the Earth. And as it does, it can collide with one of those particles and causes what's we and I'll show you pictures of this in a minute, uh, causes what we call a cosmic ray shower. Min hundreds of particles can be produced from one high energy particle hitting an, uh, an atmospheric particle in out at the top of the atmosphere. And those particles come out in a, in a big cloud. Fortunately, they, most of them are created at high enough altitudes and they have very short lifetimes that they do not make it to the ground. And as a result of that, the vast majority of the radiation created, it appears it was called the Fotzer maximum at about 20 to 30 kilometers. And then the rest of the atmosphere of the earth protects us and the, the fact that the particles are de decaying rapidly in time, microseconds and nanoseconds uh, to decay. But you can see the idea, a particle comes in, crashes into something, creates a cloud of particles. Those particles die off as you approach the ground. Now, this is what we see when we look at the cosmic ray spectra. This is from uh, Ray Mewalt at Caltech, provided this to me. On the left, you can see uh, different species. H down there stands for hydrogen's family, helium family, 
oxygen family and iron family, the most of the heavy ions tend to fall in these groups. Hydrogen being the dominant one, the protons, helium and uh, uh, family, and then oxygen and iron, that a lot of the particles tend to break up into these, these species, ultimately ending up like that. We, I'll, I'll show you the actual distribution in a little bit. But what you can see here is the solid curves in every case are outside the heliosphere, outside the sun's magnetic field and its effects. This is, what you, this is from the Voyagers. They were able to measure the interplanetary um, magnetic uh, particle environments out there. And then what you see under that are these two dashed curves. The little dashed curve corresponds to solar minimum. Now, solar minimum turns out the magnetic field of the sun is very calm, very quiet, and the co cosmic rays can come straight in. Now, they're cut off by what's called the heliopause below about 100 uh, MeV per nucleon. You can see that dip over on the left there. Uh, that dip is because the magnetic field of the sun actually keeps those particles from coming in. The stuff to the left is from the solar proton events and from the solar flares on the sun that we see. And so the, the, if you were just to look, if the sun were totally dead, this curve would, follow, would fall over uh, to the left. It would go down dramatically because the magnetic field of the sun is keeping those particles out. Now the bottom curve, uh, the big dash curve, corresponds to what we call solar maximum. When the sun is very active, its magnetic field is very turbulent and it prevents the lower energy uh, galactic cosmic rays from getting in. And you can see that it's, that it's significantly lower than what things than what you would see um, at solar minimum. It's at least a factor of two to four. And you can see each of the different species. You can see iron is the least species. Then you have oxygen, then you have helium, then you have the hydrogen. On the right is the actual total spectrum how the all as a function of EV, you can see that it goes up to about 10 to the 21st electron volts is the maximum energy. There is a maximum energy, it turns out, because when the Big Bang took place, it created a microwave background environment uh, that people talk about. Uh, I think you've heard a lot about it, that that's the way they detected the Big Bang, basically, is they saw this two, two, two I guess it was a two Kelvin background uh, uh, radio wave environment. Turns out that those radio waves are enough to scatter anything above that and slow them down. So basically the high, highest energy galactic cosmic rays uh, are slowed down and uh, scattered by the background radiate, uh, microwave environment in the galaxy. And there's reasons for the knee and I'm not gonna go into that, but there's an ankle down here. There are reasons for each of those different curves there that the nuclear physicists and galactic cosmic ray people can explain. Now here's the electrons on the left over here and you can see they're substantially uh, stopped uh, from interstellar space, IS, and at 1AU where the earth is, there's a, almost four, three orders to four orders of magnitude lower as a result. On the right over there is the actual composition of the uh, solar system abundances, that's the solar flares and things like that, is the dashed line versus the galactic cosmic rays. 
they line up fairly well for many of the species. Species These, by the way, are normalized to silicon. If you look, silicon uh, at around 14 there is uh, the normalization. But you can see the relative abundances of all the different species. Uh, the, solar, the solar spectrum is deficient in beryllium and lithium and barium, as you can see there. And those, and then also so give you some idea of the actual composition. That's important, by the way, as we'll see later, because we have to calculate the interactions of each of those heavy ions with our electronic circuits. And each, each species interacts slightly differently with the uh, way it loses energy in uh, materials. So solar proton events and CMEs, basically your flares and your and what we call coronal mass ejections. These are the big plasma clouds that come out and cause major geomagnetic storms at the earth and blow out power stations and things like that. In fact, they, they can be so bad that in the early days when te telegraphy was the only way we were able to communicate uh, back in 18, uh, was it 1876, anyway, the Carrington event, the huge Carrington event back in the 1800s, um, actually shorted out the then existing tele telegraph uh, devices. People would be doing their little chattering, and the thing would melt the uh, melt them when they like made contact because it induced such a huge electric field on the wires. Because remember, what's happening is you're pr you're pressing charged particles into the auroral zone, and those auroral auroral particles uh, create a current on the ground, and that current can be induced into a long wires. It's like millivolts per meter, but when you have something that's several hundred kilometers long, multiply hundreds of kilometers by millivolts per meter, you can get quite a large voltage, and that's what causes the failures. It's this induced very low uh, current of uh, 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 millivolts per meter from these solar storms that can wipe out our electronic systems. This is what storms look like. Uh, basically, uh, the Carrington event, for example, they saw, the, Carrington saw this really bright, sudden brightness on the sun. And in his, basically he was doing a projection of the solar image about three or four inches across. And he suddenly saw this real bright spot from, a, I think he was probably using a pinhole, but anyway, uh, he saw this bright spot and that was the X-ray emission. And then a few days later, he, all, all hell broke loose at the earth with the aurora going off and the, and the telegraph antenna, telegraph systems and all that being affected. But what we see nowadays, we can detect the radio noise. That's almost instantaneous with the X-ray emissions. And you can see that within an hour, the some of the very highest energy protons can arrive at the earth. And what they do is they can cause what are called polar cap absorption events. Over the polar cap, the particle, as we'll see in a little, a little later, the magnetic field focuses these uh, high energy particles and they come down on the polar caps and they ionize the ionosphere. Uh, and the extra ionization causes effects on radio propagation. And that's what we call polar cap absorption events. The radio waves sort of bouncing or absorbed. And then the, we have these major ionospheric disturbances. And then within about a few days, typically three to four days, we will get the big plasma cloud associated with the, with the coronal mass ejection. 
or even with a solar with a, a solar flare, they're not as severe, uh, will hit the Earth. And then you see the magnetosphere of the Earth compressed. Down on the right is one of the, some of the largest recent solar flares, uh, solar proton events that we've seen. The uh, 1972 was a major one uh, that we saw. You could actually, during that event, see the aurora over Mexico City. Think about that. You have the auroral zone over the polar caps and the magnetic field and plasma density was so great in the solar wind that it crunched the magnetic field down of the earth. And then in 19, October, 1989, we saw a very similar events. And by the way, this double peak that you see is characteristic of coronal mass ejections, solar proton events. And so solar proton events are the space rain, if you want to think of that, coming from the sun and causing havoc at the earth. Now, again, we have the two paradigms. We have flares. Flares are local uh, acceleration of particles uh, from merging of sunspots, whereas coronal mass ejections are large areas of sunspots uh, merging together. And they create a huge cloud that expands outward from the sun. And that cloud of plasma then interacts with the earth and compresses it. There's about a thousand solar flares a year whereas only about 10 per year of coronal, uh, coronal mass ejections. You can see the big characteristics of the coronal mass ejection slowly builds up, whereas the solar flare is a little, little spike. And we have to differentiate between the two uh, with, when we're looking at effects on our instruments. Now, here's some of the big coronal mass events. Uh, this was done by a close friend of mine Joan Feynman, yeah, that's, his, his, that's Feynman's sister. Uh, she worked for me and with me at JPL for many years and uh, was one of our top scientists. This is what she's noted for. She came up with, the, uh, with a probabilistic model of how to predict when solar proton events are going to occur. You can see what she did. She plotted the solar proton events at different energies here, 10 MeV and 30 MeV particles. That's million electron volts and the sunspot number. And you can see there's a correlation uh, between when sunspots go up, i.e. when we have solar maximum and the number of solar proton events. On the right, she did a superposed epoch analysis. And you can see that basically uh, for, uh, that for four years around solar maximum, uh, there's, there are, there's a peak in the solar activity than the other, the other three or four years, there's virtually nothing. You can see that on the left and the gaps between them. I hesitate to tell you though, that the 1972 flare was at approaching solar minimum. And it was the big, one of the biggest ones we've ever seen. And so you don't, you can't say how big it's gonna to be to particularly, but you can know, you know that most of the events occur in that eight year period. And believe me, there are a lot of project managers who tried to fly their missions uh, at the solar minimum, so they're not affected. It just, it's not a good idea because you never know if your launch is gonna slip. So here we go, Let's, now we're gonna go into the actual environments and the physics of those environments. Again, this is one of the few times I'll show you some equations. The, up there, what are the forces on charged particles? Where there are two types of forces. There's the direct force from the electric field. In other words, F is the electric field 
and uh, force, and Q is the charge on the particle, E is the electric field. It's one-to-one, -one, they point in the same direction. There's the magnetic field force, however, and that's V cross B. Now the cross product says that if you take a velocity of your particle and you have a magnetic field vector, you take the perpendicular to the two of them, and that's the direction the force will be in. And as we'll see in a moment, that makes the particle go around the magnetic field line, not along the magnetic field. Uh, electric field will make the will make the particle go along the magnetic along the electric field, whereas the magnetic field, and this is very important, I want you to remember this, is that the charged particle in a magnetic field with a velocity, it has no velocity, it does it's not affected by the magnetic field, but if it has a velocity, it will move perpendicular to the direction of the magnetic field and the velocity vector. Now from that, you can calculate a, a cyclotron radius, the radius, the circle, the width of the circle, the radius of the circle that the particle will make. And that's the momentum times the perpendicular velocity of the magnetic field divided by the charge in the magnetic field. That gives oh, hello? Yes? I, yes, sir, I'm sorry, I, I had a question. Um, I was curious. Uh, you've been mentioning the uh, the impact of uh, solar flares and and uh, and and uh, ejecta and so forth, and the effects it could have in the uh, in the space uh, environment. Uh, I was just curious. Uh, are you aware of the uh, of the gamma ray burst that occurred uh, uh, last year in October the 9th? Yes, and I'm aware of what you're talking about. So, uh, so you will discuss that, or or was that something that's, that's been taken into account? Very briefly, you actually saw it. That was that that was that charge that tended to something emmy uh, particle back over here. <laughs> that one down on the right. <laughs> All right, <laughs> that's that's those particles. Uh, well, these were this was a gamma ray burst. Yes, that's right. So, so that, that those are photons, correct? Yeah, and we'll go so into photons too. But no, but that's the that's where they get the energies from. Okay, uh, I, I was just curious if that's something that's uh, that's regularly taken into account as, yes, a, as a potential impact on on, yes, uh, on spacecraft and so yes, forth. Yes, it is. It is. But the the problem is that they're sufficiently rare that we don't typically concern ourselves for a, a, a mission, a, a, a long mission for or those. We typically only, as you'll see, we primarily consider the galactic cosmic rays and the uh, of solar proton events and the trapped radiation environments are the main ones that we consider for that. But yes, we do, we're aware of those and they are, but we do do tests for those uh, and I'll show you what it looks, what they look like. Well, thank you very much. And, and if not, I can do, after the, after we get through, I'll go over it with you. Anyway, this is the cyclotron frequency. That's how fast it goes around the circle. That's the mega C that you see there. So those are the things that you have to define. You, you need to know that the electric field makes things move along the direction of the electric field. Magnetic fields cause them to move perpendicular. And then finally, there's a thing called pitch angle. I'm not gonna say too much about that, but it's very important in our models that we develop of the magnetic of the radiation belts that we know what the pitch angle. That's the angle that the particle makes with the between the, uh, the you can see there's the perpendicular velocity divided by the overall velocity of the particle. That gives you, and that's related to the magnetic field over the 
the point where the particle is going to mirror. And we'll discuss that now. This is what we're talking about with mirror effects. If you look on the left, if you can see and where the magnetic field is uh, weak, the particle starts out in a circle. As the magnetic field gets stronger and stronger, the magnetic field radius, the radius of curvature of the particle becomes smaller and smaller and you get what's called cyclotron motion. So a part, if you're looking down on the Earth's magnetic field, this is what it looks like. Near the equator, towards the Earth, the magnetic field goes up. Away from the Earth, it, go, it goes down. And particles tend to move around the Earth in this cycloidal motion that you see here. And depending on the energy of the particle and the charge of the particle, they can go left to right or right to left. But this is what gives you, begins to give you the trapping motion. If you have a particle in equatorial plane, magnetic equatorial plane, you'll see that the particle will go around the Earth in cycloids. On the right, uh, there's a different force, and I'll show it's very interesting. It turns out that there's two magnetic field components to, in, for the Earth's magnetic field. One is the magnetic field along the field line, that would be P parallel. And then there's a, because the magnetic field converges and becomes stronger, there's a perpendicular field. So a particle goes around in a circle and it, it would move al along the elect along the magnetic field line uh, which is typically where we have a, we have an electric field typically along the magnetic field line and that would cause them either to move along it or to stay in spiral around the magnetic equator. But there's this little component perpendicular and that causes another gyration gyro radius. And the bottom line is, you can think of it two ways. As, as the field goes down, as the field becomes more and more strengthened, the particle's reflected. And the reason it's reflected is because it's seeing another gyro radius effect. And that's shown here on the left. And what we're, do what we're doing here is the particles are coming along, bouncing back and forth between the Earth. Now, notice along the bottom line here, I have L shells. L shells are basically the point where the magnetic field crosses the Earth's equatorial plane divided by the radius of the Earth. And so one, one L would be at the surface of the Earth, two L would be two radiuses of the Earth, three L would be three radiuses of the Earth, etc. We usually talk about L shells because that's, that's the magnetic field line. These are magnetic field lines that you see cur uh, curving uh, out to the equatorial plane and back. The dashed line, for example, is a magnetic field line. And so what happens is we have particles either going around at the equator, spiraling around the magnetic field. And if they have any component along the magnetic field line, like from electric field, they will spiral into the Earth's magnetic field. And as we saw previously, as the magnetic field com compresses and becomes stronger, the f there's another gyro radius, if you want to think about it, between M and M star. And so the particle basically creates another loop back and forth between those two points. The BM is called the, mir is called the mirroring of magnetic field. The particle basically mirrors, just like a, when I, back and forth between the two hemispheres. So it goes around the Earth in cycloidal motion, and it bounces back and forth between the magnetic field uh, constant magnetic field surfaces where BM is a constant. And then on the right, you can actually see uh, where the, the Van Allen radiation belts are. Those are the vertical swaths. All those field lines are closed. 
And as a result of those, the particles go bounce back and forth. Uh, it's within typically about six to 10 earth radius or L shells, the particles are, are trapped and they bounce back and forth between the hemispheres and go around the earth. And we'll see later that depending on, I'll show you a little later what, which way the different charged particles go and things of that nature. All right, so that's what we call particle trapping. Now, again, the effect is that over the magnetic poles over here, you can see that there's an opening uh, uh, where the solar wind can come in. The magnetic field goes to basically zero, right? Uh, where the dots are and where the, the angle lines are. And they can also come, the electrons and other charged particles can come go down the magnetic tail of the earth and come back up along these magnetic field lines that are open and they come in over the over the polar caps. And that's what causes the uh, polar cap absorption events. But more importantly, the uh, last closed field lines here typically are what cause the aurora. And anyway, this, this gives you what the galactic cosmic rays and the solar proton event transmission looks like. If you're in zero inclination orbit, the magnetic field of the earth will shield you. If you're in a 30 degree inclination orbit, some of it starts to get through. And that's shown here on, on these three plots. The first one is the, basically the flux. It's called rigidity. I'm not, it's, a, another, it's momentum rather than energy. But the bottom line is you can see for zero inclination, for all of them, that's the, outs, that's the cosmic ray differential spectrum. If you move down one, because of the magnetic field, you get this, uh, this transmission. And you can see as you go towards the polar caps, more and more particles get in. And you can see going from left to right, the exposure goes significantly up as you go to the right, as you go to higher inclinations. And that's why airplanes flying over the polar caps and stuff like that tend to get more radiation effects than the other than ones down around the equator. And in fact, we do divert. They, there is a tendency nowadays to divert flights away from the polar caps if there's a big event. Now, how do we model this stuff? Well, basically we look at the statistics of the charged particle fluxes on the magnetic field lines as a function of the L value. And that's on the left over here, that's satellite data. You can see where the, the red is the most intense of the radiation, pink, purple, uh, pink there, purple, I guess it is. Uh, Hi, I had another question. Uh, I, I, on the uh, southern magnetic anomaly, does that have any significant effect on the uh, on the radiation that impacts? Glad, uh, glad you asked. Two slides from now. <laughs> oh, okay. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Anyway, here we go. This on the left is the uh, shows you the magnetic field lines, and it shows you the statistics. They just take thousands of satellites, and they've averaged all the data together. This has been done at uh, um, Lincoln Lab and Los Alamos and uh, Aerospace. They, they've been developing these models. It's called IREN up there, International Radiation Environment Near Earth. It used to be called AE8, AP8, and was produced by Goddard, but the, the new one. Now, here's the way it works. They take and they figure out how many, how, what percentage of the time you saw a given flux. You know, 50% of the time, 95% of the time, and they pick out what the 95% uh, of the time the flux is less than the value green line that you see there. 50% of the time, the flux is less than the red line that you see there. 
and left is the protons and right is the electrons. And you can see they're in MeV. And typically we uh, worry about particles up to about uh, 50 to 100 MeV at most for uh, radiation effects. But so you can see 10 MeV over here for the electrons. You can see up to about 30 or 40 MeV for the protons and what we concern with. So the model outputs for you, you put your orbit into this program and it comes back and it tells you for whatever percentage you want, what the flux will be for that percentage. Oops, I'm supposed to, I think I'm supposed to take a break here in just a second, but let me finish up on this. So these are the type of spectra that we need to put into our codes to look at dose. Now, here we go. Guess what? South Atlantic anomaly. <laughs> Here's the magnetic intensity at the Earth's surface. If you plot it, you'll see that it's very high, uh, 0.5 Gauss over the polar caps. And it drops down to less than 0.2 on the South Atlantic anomaly over here on the, on the, the right of the picture, the red that you see there. And what this is, if you look on the right, you can see what it is. The magnetic field of the Earth is not a true dipole. It, even though I've been showing you pictures of dipoles, it's distorted. In fact, there at, be, at best, there, there's this little, you can think of it as two, a little bitty dipole and the one big dipole. And as a result of that, there's a minimum in the magnetic field. And as a result of that, we go back over here. Whoops, went too far. We go back over here and you can see where M is. M is down lower and it's near this, it's about 500, at 500 kilometers. I'll show you the actual, Here's what it looks like. This is a South Atlantic anomaly. And you can see for the proton fluxes that they significantly peak right off of South America. And the same for the electrons. This is the, the flux contours. I have dose contours at, at, in the in backup slides if you're interested. But this is the region where we can, where the, for low Earth orbit, we can get real problems with radiation. And this is what happens, the Hubble wide field planetary camera, which I worked on, was part of the program. Um, if you go through the South Atlantic anomaly, the, these are all the uh, proton events that you're seeing and hitting them on the left over there. Now I call your attention to some of the straight lines. You notice those little straight lines in there? People don't realize this, but a, a CCD, charge coupled device, is a little plane, a little, a little plate. And particles can come through right through the side, of, through the edge of it, and knock out several different uh, bits. Now, this becomes extremely important because CCDs were and, and are still related to solid-state memories. And the result of that is that you can get multiple, multiple upsets right next to each other in location on a memory circuit. So what we do one of the simplest mitigation techniques that we use for solid state memories is to randomize the location of each of the bits in a given word. You follow me? You, want, you don't want them next to each other because there's a, very, there's a reasonable chance that you'll get one of these streaks and that will trigger all the bits in your word. What we're trying to do is, we're, what we typically do is you might use like uh, eight bits uh, for the word and then you use uh, two bits to do the parity check for the word, or you can actually do reflect it, in other words, half the memory. And so you, you do the inverse um, and you compare the two. And when you get, if parity doesn't check, 
or if you have um, too many bit flips, you, you can throw the word away or you can do error detection and correction. And that's what we call EDAC, is we take, take into account the fact that some of the bits can flip. We can generally, using error detection and correction, easily fix one bit because we can have the inverse and we have the, the, the original. And you compare the two and you can find one. The big problem comes uh, with parity checks when you get more than two or three. Uh, two, you can often fix. Three, it becomes uh, rather difficult to figure out who, which one is right, in other words. So you have parity check and you have the two images and you compare them and you can figure out from the parity check which one is right and uh, or if it's, if it's not working. Now on the right, you asked about, uh, th this is a galactic cosmic ray nuclear shower. This is one charged particle hitting the earth and causing this, you can see in the left there, that real bright area, that's from one charged particle. This is that Flotzer maximum type effect. On the right, the image there is the Andromeda galaxy. And this is with Hubble telescope. And this, this is also, as I say, it's equivalent to your memories, if you want to think about it that way. So you can see how one cosmic ray can do massive damage. And that's what happened with that gamma ray you were talking about. It hit the upper atmosphere. And it caused a nuclear shower that they were able to detect on the ground in a very similar process. And when we get to the photon interactions, you'll see how that, how that happens, how the, the, uh, the gamma ray um, can, and can cause a shower like this. But this is, this is uh, believed to be a cosmic ray hitting the side, causing the, the uh, shower that you see there. And this is, has massive effects on your memory, as you can imagine. So that's the problems that we have with this kind of stuff. Now, I responsible, was responsible for determining all the radiation belt models, but for the Earth. All these models you see here, I created. And this, frankly, uh, several of them were the only ones that exist. And Uranus and Neptune, for example, these are the only models. Uh, up until recently, my Saturn model was the only Saturn model. And Jupiter, I'm still the, the, the one that most people use. It's called Gyre, uh, the Gyre model. And uh, I produced all these models, and that, that was my job at JPL. One of my jobs was to develop these magnetic field, these radiation belt models. You can see on the left is typically the electrons. On the right is the, I'm sorry, it's the protons. And on the right is the electron models. And in these particular cases, they're typically at 1 MeV for the electrons and either 10 or 5 MeV for the uh, protons. So you can see the belts here. Now, I'm going to take, we're supposed to take a break now. Actually, it was supposed to be about five minutes ago. So can we take a, uh, uh, Ken, can we take about a 10-minute break? Of course, take a break, yes. All right, so let's take a break, and I'll be right back. And okay. I can answer, and when I get back, I can answer questions for a few minutes. Uh, okay. We'll get back, we'll get back at uh, uh, 2.20, okay? Okay. All right. Regular lecture. Okay. The gentleman just. All right. First of all, there are basically two interactions that we need to concern ourselves with. One is that an incoming charged particle or photon directs acts directly with the nucleus of the atom. 
or of, of the material. The other one, the one that's 99.9% .9 of the time happens is, is the picture on the lower right there. The upper left shows you what happens when, you, when a cosmic uh, GCR hits a nucleus. Uh, and we'll see that in some, some respects, uh, that's what when the gamma ray hits it. As on the left is what happens when the charged particle passes through a material. Those are little, little ionization, that's an ionization track. It doesn't hit anything, but the electric field from the particle interacts with the electric fields of the, of the, of the material of the atoms and ionize, can ionize them as it passes through. Now here's some we're going to cover on the left there, some of the primary damage effects. Displacement damage is where you clobber something and knock it out of the place. Total ionizing dose is where you dump energy, like on the right over there. Uh, displacement damage is up is related to the picture up above. And on the right, ionization puts energy into the material or ionizes it. And then there's single event effects. Single event effects, basically, that track that you see on the right causes a, can cause a current uh, pulse. In fact, what you see there can be a wire. And between different bits in a detector, it can cause a short, can literally short out the device. And one of the ways we look for that is all of a sudden the device will melt. And because there's this basically a wire created between two parts of the device that have high potential differences and you, you can run a current up that little track. And that's, a, that's called latch up. That's the most severe problem that we really worry about. And it, in many cases, what they've been doing nowadays is they'll put uh, 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 power detectors on the circuits that they see power levels suddenly shoot up, they'll turn the device off. When you turn the device off, the track goes away and it's cured. And so you basically put watchdog watchdog circuitry on your device. So if it suddenly starts drawing a massive amount of power, you just shut it off and then turn it back on a few seconds later. Gate rupture is where there's enough energy to actually destroy the uh, bit. Single event upsets, you, you ups, as you saw in the pictures, you basically put enough current into, into one of the, each of the bits that it causes them to flip. And so that's what single event upsets are. Single event upsets, you just turn the device on and off and the, the effect is gone, you reset it. So there are flux rate effects. It turns out that for a, a, a family of devices, which we'll mention later, the really low rates of radiation dose in space are 10 to 100, maybe even 1,000 times more severe than what if we put 1,000 times that amount of dose in a few minutes in, when we're testing the parts. In other words, the testing data is screwed up. You test a part at, say, a megarad, and you do it in like in a, in a half an hour. In space, over a, a month or two months, the same level, uh, a megarad total dose will do far more damage from some, for some devices. And then there are long-term material changes. Remember, you're dumping energy into this stuff. Fortunately, most of the dose from photons and things like that, like UV and uh, X-rays and stuff, is at the surface. And so in a few microns or, or nanometers actually in the surface, most of that dose is absorbed. And so you'll find for like Teflon, 
uh, Teflon is very sensitive to surface dose. Otherwise, it's not much affected by radiation except at the surface, and that causes it to degrade. And then internal charging will go into that uh, when spacecraft charging. And then, as I say, UV, EUV, same thing. Surface, the, the photons dumped in the surface are typically absorbed very short distance. But for that surface, you can get gigarads. I want you to understand that for UV and EUV and some of the x-rays and stuff, you can get gigarads of dose. And part of typical, most, most materials will stand up to some fraction of a gigarad or something before they start to show problems. But Teflon, Kapton in particular, are very sensitive to surface dose. So you asked about photons. And this is where, where we get into the gamma rays and uh, UV. To the left over here, we're talking about pick, basically UV, EUV. And the Z of the target is the number of uh, protons in the target. So you can figure out which element you're talking about on the left over there. And along the bottom is the energy of the photon ranging from, uh, U, from infrared all the way up to uh, uh, gamma rays on the right. And what you're seeing happen here is look down at the bottom. Uh, for, low for the low energies, for UV, EUV, even infrared, and some of those things like that, uh, an X-ray or something coming in can knock out an electron. It's just enough to cause uh, the outer electrons, or in this case for X-rays, the K electrons, inner shell electrons, can be knocked out. So in comes a photon, out goes electron, maybe a little maybe a little light uh, comes out but it ha but as you know it has to be at the right uh, wavelength to cause the ejection by far more common is what we call compton scattering a photon comes in and the the photon is scattered by the atom and but an electron is created and and is removed from the outer shell of the from the shells of the electron of the atom and it goes off, and that angle there, by the way, has to do with the amount of energy that and momentum, the momentum transfer that you do. The angle is very precise depending on the incident photon energy and the uh, electron that goes out. Then the right is what you're talking about with the ultra high gamma rays and stuff. You actually come in and you knock out electrons in the inner, the very inner shells. That's the, the greater than one MeV. And if you look up at the top. You can see where you get uh, photoelectron effects dominate. That's one electron comes out. Compton scattering, you get photon and electron. On the right, you get electrons and, and positrons knocked out. That's the E positive down there. You actually get particles created uh, going in, in, in going through the atom. There's enough energy there. The atom provides the, um, the, ma the mass against which the interaction can take place, and it creates it creates in situ an electron and a positron. Uh, this creates the energy is directly converted to those two things. So basically, you start on the left, you knock out low energy, lower energy electrons. In the middle, you knock out photons and electrons. And on the right, you're creating uh, even creating uh, more exotic particles from the gamma ray showers and things like that. And up there, you can see where silicon is. You can see that uh, silicon, as a function of energy, you can see what percentage is photoelectrons, what effect is Compton scattering, and what effect is pair production. And that's basically what we do. We, we 
start, for example, with cobalt 60s, a gamma ray source. It puts out, uh, what is it, like 2 MeV um, gamma ray that goes into um, uh, the surface of our material, the device we want to test, and it creates a cascade, as we'll see in just a second, of particles, of electrons and photons and other more exotic particles, depending on the energy. And so you start with you start with cobalt 60, you start with a photon, the photon causes an electron-photon cascade. And that's shown here. Uh, these are actual uh, simulations uh, using a Monte Carlo techniques where they, they actually track the incoming photon or electron, uh, comes into the device. You can see on the left, you have a thin shield and the particle comes in. Some of the particles, if you notice, are scattered back out. Those are called backscatter. And the backscatter, as we'll see, can be significant for particles. And then you make the shield a little bit thicker and you get a whole cascade down there on the left. It looks like a, you know, like a tree growing as all the different particles come off, they hit other particles and you get these cascade effects. That's basically what happens and how they detect those huge gamma ray bursts. And the reason we don't particularly worry about them too much is because they're very rare, fortunately, right now. And you can see that if you have thin shielding, which is typical of spacecraft, you're not gonna get a huge um, type of cascade before, the, before they pass totally through the material. But on the right is an infinite shell. In other words, uh, you, you're doing it into something several inches thick or something. You can see how, what I wanna call your attention to is note that the uh, incoming electron or photon causes a location in there where most of the particles, uh, charged particles are stopped besides the ones that come out the back and a few go through. But notice the one, there, there are some coming back off the surface. Those are gonna be important. But notice that little cloud point in there where most of the charge is deposited. That's unique to electrons. This is, whoops, before I go there though, I want you to remember this chart. There are two ways that shielding is described. One is in my field, we're ancient, we use mills. That's a thousandth of an inch. No CGS, no MKS, mills. That's what most spacecraft do. They design to a hundred mills. <laughs> so that's literally the thickness of the shielding. It is typically considered to be aluminum, which is 2.7 grams per cubic centimeter. Now, if you divide mills by the density of the material, they're trying to get rid of the density of the material, you come up with a unit of grams per square centimeter. Okay, you see that down there? That's where we multiply the, uh, we take the mills and we divide it by grams and you get grams per square centimeter down there. Okay, and always get this confused. It's rho, is it rows time? Anyway, oh yeah, it's mil, mills is, uh, is, is distance. So you multiply by rho, you get grams per square centimeter. So this is a conversion between mills of aluminum, which is thickness, times the density of the material, which gives you grams per square centimeter. Now, why would you care about grams per square centimeter? Very, very simple. 
if you calculate how many grams per square centimeter you need to, to shield a box, and you know what the area of the box is, you can multiply by square centimeters and get how much grams your spacecraft requires for that shielding. So the designers of, of boxes and things, they like to work in grams per square centimeter. So we're gonna bounce back and forth because of where I got the charts from between mils, which is thickness, and grams per square centimeter, which is the density of the material multiplied by the thickness of the material. Does everybody understand that? It should be straightforward. But in case you need it, you can refer back to this chart whenever we, we bounce around. And we're gonna bounce around starting now. Here, in terms of grams per square centimeter, is the absorption of ele electron dose as a function of depth. Notice that as you go to higher and higher energies, the electron cloud, this is the density of electrons in the material because it's, it's energy per unit gram. You can see what's going on here. Uh, the electrons deposit more dose in a little cloud near the surface for 10 mils. As you go to 35 mils, you can see what it's, what it's looking like. And eventually you get over here to our standard 100 mils. But bottom line is, and what I want you to take away from this chart is that electrons deposit dose over a large depth range depending on the energy. And so that, that's critical. We typically don't go much above uh, 10 MeV. And so now ions do something very, very different. On the plot down here, we're gonna put a proton into this calcium fluoride, which is, a, which is glass and we shoot the particle through. And at 42 MeV, the particle has the DEDX, it is almost is basically constant. It's just a small amount of energy is absorbed as it goes through as it ionizes things. 22 MeV, not much. But when you get to 12.5 MeV for this type of material, all of a sudden, the bloody thing stops at 0.7 millimeters. Now, I forgot to make the conversion for millimeters for you, but this is the way that I got the plot. And so what I want you to see is that this is called the Bragg peak. Turns out that protons and heavy ions deposit their charge uniquely in a sharp peak. They, they're not spread out. And so a particle of a given energy basically makes a little nuclear star, as they call them, when they go through. And so that's the difference. And we'll see that makes a significant difference in the way you design your shielding for a spacecraft. Now, here is gives you sort of the, the mean distance in which electron deposits charge um, for a given energy. So you can see aluminum. If you go to 100, <clears throat> 100 mils, you come across, you can go down, and you can see that that's about, 10, about uh, 1 MeV. And that's basically what we shoot for is between one, stopping the between one MeV and 10 MeV. And so that's why we usually go with a hundred and we come down. That's why hundred mils is the typical spacecraft shielding thickness for radiation belts and such. We use that as a, a canonical reference. You, you, people, people don't necessarily do that, but that's the value that we reference things to. And so the dis distance though, you notice that protons 
basically stopped at 100 mils. Um, they don't, it takes, you have to go up to over 100 MeV before a proton will stop, uh, will deposit its charge. And that's the point. The flux of electrons at lower energies dominates. Protons at the high, you have to go to very high energies and the flux is dropping off dramatically. So we normally worry about electrons. Now at the earth, unfortunately, in the inner radiation belt, protons dominate. And so we'll see how that effect is. But here, the, for spacecraft charging purposes, you can see, and we'll go back on this again, electrons penetrate about 100,000 times farther than protons do. And so protons are basically, for most of the flux, stopped at the surface. Now, if we normalize the uh, energy of a particle, incoming particle by its atomic mass units, neutrons and protons, you get the grams per square centimeter that they will penetrate. And guess what? For, from hydrogen to iron, they're pretty close curves, very close curves. Uh, so we can cheat <laughs> if you want. <laughs> we, we can cheat and just uh, use the same, we, we kind of cheat and use the same curve for all of them. But anyway, this is what it looks like. And I always thought this was, it was an interesting cheat in the grams per square centimeter. If you'd normalize by the atomic mass units, the, all the ions pretty much uh, uh, penetrate to about the same distance for a given energy, energy per unit AMU. So you need those, you're gonna need all those numbers. Now, here's how we do it. This is the magic recipe. And if you take nothing else from the course today, please listen to this very carefully. What we're going to do is we're gonna assume a target of mass M. Just picture in your mind a cube of mass M. It has some density, rho. It has a, let's assume it's a cube, so it has, a, let's assume a plate, for example. So it has an area of delta A, normal to the fl particle fluxes coming in. And it has a thickness tau. Clearly, delta A times tau gives you the volume. Okay, area times thickness gives you the volume. So anyway, the thickness is equal to the mass of the particle divided by the density and the area. Obviously, area times thickness times density gives you the mass. So everybody should see that. that. But we're going to use that in just a second. Now, to first order, I'm just, just for illustration purposes, we're going to assume that the flux is equal to the number of particles passing through the unit area. These are particles normal to the surface, passing the surface area A. So particles come in, they pass through this, this little uh, flat surface. And that's how many of them, and that's roughly the flux, particles per square centimeter going through the uh, surface. With me so far? Okay, now, here, here, here begins the trick. Delta E, that's the, the, the energy that's deposited in material, is equal to the thickness that you pass through times the DE DX for that material. That's critical. DE DX is material unique, okay? And so you always see dose de defined for a material, like silicon, aluminum, things like that. And we're mainly interested in silicon, aluminum, because those are the main, uh, silicon's the main thing we use for um, uh, circuit, for uh, 
uh, devices and uh, aluminum is what we use for shielding. So the dose per particle of energy E is approximated by take the stuff above it and we go dose as a function of energy is equal to the change in energy over the mass. We've already defined that at the very outset. So take that, plug in the previous equation and you get delta e, DE DX for that material is the thickness of the material divided by the mass of the material. Okay, now we got a formula up there for the mass of the material and thickness. So we take thickness and we replace it with mass over density times delta A and guess what? Everything cancels out except for one over rho DE DX times one over the area, inverse of the area. So dose is equal to DE DX divided by rho times divided by the area. So now the total dose at a given energy is the dose times the number of part of the dose times the number of particles at that given energy. So ND gives you the total dose. And look, when you do that, the uh, N, the N, if you go back up to equation one, if you put N in there and you multiply it by the delta A comes up and you end up with flux, one over rho DE DX times the flux as a function of energy. So dose is related to this thing that we call energy energy transfer and the flux. LAT times flux gives you the dose at a given energy. Finally, for the total dose, we have to integrate over all the energies from E naught, whatever the energy reaches that place to infinity. You see that? So two critical things to take from this. Dose is equal to LAT times flux. LAT is proportional to one over rho times DE DX for a given material. You're, what we're next going to do is we're going to use LAT for everything for doing our calculations. All the people that do these types of things use LAT. They don't use um, DE DX. And here's how we go from uh, DEDX to LET. Start on the left. That's the flux for the uh, for iron, it turns out, uh, as a function of MeV per AMU at solar max. The solar minimum is the top curve, solar the average, and then so average flux, and then the solar minimum, uh, solar max down there. Solar max is the bottom curve, solar min is the top curve, and the middle curve is the average. So that's a typical uh, solar proton event environment that we would assume for emission. And that's over there's the flux per second, all that kind of garbage. And now we go over to the right. Every one of these different materials, if you remember, if we normalize them by their, by their AMU, they pretty much lay on each other, but we're interested specifically in iron. So look at iron curve there. And you see that it's, we're going to pick a given LAT, uh, something like about three. So an LAT of three, we go across and we see that the curve crosses, that straight line hits uh, an L, uh, energy for iron at around 10 to the minus, about two times 10 to the minus two MeV per nucleon. And over there on the right, it hits it at about uh, seven 
uh, MeV per nucleon. Now, why is that important? What we do is we take those two fluxes from the curve on the left, those two energies, and we sum the fluxes together and we produce down on the lower left there, we, we reproduce the differential flux versus LAT. We've taken, the, we've taken the flux up on the left and we've converted that down here to nucleons and in, in, you can see over here to LAT and down here. So you've got flux versus LAT now, okay? Then we go from that curve then we, we can then integrate the, we can then convert that into flux versus iron. Hopefully that makes sense to you. <laughs> Bottom line is we want to get the flux as a function of LAT. Now, let's go over here and do, look at some examples. On the upper left, this is the so-called Heinrich or LAT flux for galactic cosmic rays for Z less than 27. And what we've done here is that's, that's the flux versus LAT down the bottom. And I want you increase the shielding grams per square centimeter. You can see, even if you go up to hundred grams per square centimeter, you're not making a huge difference in the shielding. Whereas if you go down below uh, to the solar proton event, if you were to go, for do, just go to 10 grams per square centimeter, you made huge differences in the, uh, so in the uh, uh, flux of particles at a, for a given LAT. So the bottom line is galactic cosmic rays aren't as much influenced by, the, uh, by shielding as the solar proton events are. And that's, I'm going to show you that in the next slide, uh, what that typically is. Now, what do we do with all this information? So we got the flux as a function of LAT. Here's what we do. People go to uh, accelerators and they shoot heavy ions at devices. And for devices, they calculate what the cross section for an upset is. One, basically the number of upsets, they calculate how many they get for uh, given in a uh, given LAT, and that's what you see over here. Typically, that first curve, the the square curve, the square cutoff thing there, that's what most people expect to see from a device. Unfortunately, a lot of the new devices and things have extremely complex uh, cross sections, and you get the curve on the right, the lower right over there. And bottom line, though, is you need the cross section. That's how basically uh, what what how big of an area is exposed to get one bit flip. Now, what do we do with that? Well, we go down there and remember, LAT is MeV centimeter squared per milligram, and we have then the cross section. And so, what we're going to do is we take the flux, which is over on the left over here, you can see that on the left over here, you take that and you put that in here and flux is per square centimeter. So flux versus LAT, put that in there. We multiply flux times the cross-sectional area and we get the number of hits per number of upsets for that device. 
we have what its cross section looks like. And we multiply that cross section times the LAT, the flux versus LAT. And we come out, when we integrate, we get the number of upsets. That's how we calculate the amount of upsets for a, a memory chip or for a device. You multiply the curve in, L, in terms of LA, the flux in terms of LAT, and you multiply it by the cross section and integrate, and you get the number of upsets. That's how it works. That's the secret to calculating upsets. Now, here's what the here's a typical mission profile produced by JPL for a um, mission at one AU. We use the Adams 90% worst case GCR flux. You can see that in there in the middle is 25 mils and 500 mils, not much difference if you look uh, with shielding. So they're not much affected by shielding, but look at the effects on a 99% flare. That means 99% of the time, uh, only 1% of the time will a flare be expected to exceed that during your mission, okay? That's what that said, 99 percentile says, 99% of the time, we won't see a flux higher than that. Uh, so we assume that, and same for the 90% for the GCR. And what you're seeing, so you look over on the left and that's uh, the flux centimeter squared per day of uh, particles. And the bottom line is that you can, with 100 mils, you could do a significant damage to the proton flux. You just about, you can, pretty much kill, get, kill it down. And by the time you get to 250 to 500 mils, that's a half an inch, you pretty much killed it below the GCR rate. And by the way, you see these bumps over here? If the iron is the one to the right, that's that would be the iron flux. I think the, the, second, the second dip from the left, from the right, I mean, is oxygen. And then I think the helium hydrogen stuff is a stuff over to the to the left, if I remember exactly. So that's how you do it. We give you this this curve. You figure out how many days you're going to be out there, and you multiply that by the cross section, and you get how many upsets you're going to get for that device. Now you asked about Soho. There's Soho. <laughs> That's Soho getting clobbered by a by a, a, a solar proton event. Oops, let's go back and do it again. I like watching that. Whoops, keep don't do that. There we go. Now watch. There was the coronal mass ejection. By the way, there's another coronal mass ejection up on the right there. You see that? I've got better I, on, my, on my long course that I give for several days. I, I've got details of all these things. You can get the idea. You see, you see the uh, CME, whoops, you see the CME and then you see there. there's one, there's another, and then a few minutes, a few days there, this is speeded up obviously, you can see the time on the lower left there. Now, this is what we're, we're, we're worried about. Here's a cosmic ray going through um, PNP or NPN junction and a memory element. This is old style. Now down, we're down around one to two microns instead of 25 microns. But uh, I guess I should change the 25 to, <laughs> to one or two. It's the same thing. As the charged particle goes through there, you've got this NPN or PNP junction and you create a current pulse. 
that's the way you reset a bit, how you, you control the bit. You, you put a current on it and it flips one or zero. Charged particle does exactly the same thing when it goes through there. That's the problem with single event upsets. And you can see over there, look at those tracks. Look at those long tracks that you see. Uh, you can see these things like this. Do you see where my, my finger, you can see these long tracks, right? And those are, uh, that would take out a whole bunch of your memory elements. And if your word is in, in that vicinity, you can take out the entire word. And so you have to, you, you can correct for one or two bit flips easily with um, oral detection and correction software, but anything beyond that becomes confusing. Now, we did this power on, we were worried about power on reset anomalies on Galileo and the ACS. Now, basically what uh, happens is that if it, if it detects in the AACS system, a, uh, a power a power pulse, it shuts it down and turns it back on. And indeed, when we were going by uh, Jupiter, we got 42 AACS power on resets. Turned out they were not due to cosmic rays, they were due to spacecraft charging as we'll discuss later. But this is it's the same type of idea. So here's what we did. They simulated in the computer, the, the a three-dimensional layout of all the devices. And they basically simulated the, the, the way the, device, the, uh, mem the uh, little computer would operate. And then they injected uh, upsets at all the different points where you could. They just randomly injected upsets, thousands of them, to see what would happen. And what they found was that about uh, point about 83 percent of the upsets were didn't have any effect on anything or no they weren't they, they didn't they didn't do anything they, they might have seen them but they didn't do anything reported you can see about two and a half two point six percent of them were detected by the power on reset mechanism the ace had ups had a upset at a little bit uh, lower rate, 0.37%. And finally, the power on resets were at 1%. So the percentage, we determined that the percentage of currents of the reported, the ACE and the power on resets was about 4% of all the cosmic rays and such going through that device. And so that's how we were able to figure out how much shielding and everything to put to reduce the um, upset rate to where it was acceptable. It takes you like, uh, Galileo, when it went through the heart of the radiation belts the first time, uh, was only like about 45 minutes or something, flight time around the planet and back, back through by IO. And so we you figure out how much time that is, you figure out what this upset rate would imply. And we, what we were worried about was that there would be a power on reset when we needed to fire the engines on Galileo to put it into orbit. After that, you didn't care. And power, and but that's what happened. Voyager, we had Voyager, like I say, we had a power, we had power on resets that caused problems. Okay. So now let me show you another. This is a real case. I provided a radiation model of the protons for the Cassini mission. 
Cassini memory, a solid state recorder, records how many arrows it gets. The red, big red dots are a thousand to two thousand upsets. Yellow is a hundred to ninety, and green is ten to a hundred. The blue dot, blue little lines uh, that you see there are the actual orbit of Cassini, and this is the distance. And so what you see here is where I said there were lots of protons, that's where all the upsets are. And as you move further out, you get into the green zone and my green zone. And they basically, they ended up using my radiation model to predict when and how many upsets they were going to see in the solid, date solid state data recorder on Cassini. I think that's pretty good agreement. And uh, I was amazed. Um, they didn't tell me for a long time <laughs> that they were doing that, but I found out, they told me finally, and they sent me the data and I was able to publish a paper on it. But so that shows you how well it works. Now, let's look at what you have to do to shield. And I want to stress here that the shielding is can get very complex. Up in the left, these are five basic configurations, a hollow sphere, this is what a spacecraft would look like when you have a, a circuit board or circuit element somewhere inside the spacecraft. The next one would be a solid sphere. This is what we do. We actually will put uh, shielding like tungsten or lead directly on a device. So, so we shield just that little device. That's what we call a it would be like a solid sphere. That's spot shielding it's called. So the next one is a single slab. That's where the particle comes in and you notice that it's a slab. Now the slab is infinite. So what happens here is when, as you go increasing angles, you get to infinite angle, you get to basically um, zero degree angle, you've got infinite shielding because you're going right through the side, sideways through the shield. But here, the, the maximum flux is right as shown, but as you increase the angle, the shielding has a massive effect on the uh, flux. So the sphere, solid sphere, the particle comes in and it goes directly towards the device or it misses it. If it's a proton or a heavy ion. Unfortunately with an electron, guess what happens? It hits that and it causes a cascade and that cascade of particles then hits the middle one. Down here with a solid sphere, the cascade is right at the particle so it can be actually be worse. So you have to be very careful when you do spot shielding because of the electrons, not for the ions. The ions, it's fine, it, it does its job. So if you're trying to shield for electrons, you do something different. Now down here on the single slab, the electron, the ions just go through and they hit it or they miss it. But with the electrons, of course, they're shielded with angle. Come over here and you can see that the, again, the this is for electrons primarily. As the particles come in, they hit a they hit a back slab, and those secondary electrons come off and hit your device or particles. And finally, if you have like a solar array, you got stuff coming from both sides, and they call that a double slab. And you get secondaries from everywhere, and the primaries coming in. Now let's see what the difference is. You would expect for protons, uh, not much happens with a sphere and a spherical shell. Double slabs and stuff like that are a little more effective because you get that angular, that minor, minor angular effect. So slabs, it's pretty much they're all the same. And for spherical shells, the spherical shells are a little bit worse. 
because you because you've got uh, stuff coming in all around you. Whereas with the slabs, you've got stuff coming in from the side. Now for electrons, though things are substantially different. The worst one is is the solid sphere. There you got all the all the secondary electrons and stuff right on your device from the particle coming in anywhere in that spot shield. The spherical shell, on the other hand, if you expand the spherical shell as it gets bigger and bigger, it begins to look like a slab, a, dub, a double slab, if you include all the secondary particles. So double slab, back slab, and spherical shell tend to approach each other. The double slab down here that we do is we just, that doesn't create, include secondary, so it's quote unquote uh, on paper more effective. We usually double it so that it looks like the, um, uh, the back slab and the double slab. But the bottom line is JPL will assume a spherical shell model as we consider that very conservative. Spot shields, you have to use a spherical model. Uh, some, of, some of the uh, um, models, as we'll see in a second, assume only a, a, a double slab or a back slab model. So it depends on which uh, shielding model you're using, what they assume. And there are big differences, as you can see here, factors of, of uh, two or three to four or five, depending on which model you assume. And again, for protons, it's no big deal. For electrons, it's, uh, it's a big deal because of all the secondaries produced. Now here shows you some of the effects of these types of calculations that we're, I'm gonna show you. This is the Magellan, which was at Venus and therefore wasn't shielded from the solar wind and, and um, solar proton events. In 1989, that massive storm caused the uh, caused the uh, solar array current to drop dramatically on its uh, its uh, solar rays. And the star scanner, for example, picked up all kinds of upsets on that date in that 1989 slab uh, storm. So you can see that there are major effects. Now, fortunately, from uh, th this satellite and for the geosynchronous orbit satellites at the Earth during the 1989 storm, within a year, the, the uh, devices annealed to some degree. This, for example, here's the geosynchronous orbit for that event. And you can see the GOES 5, 6, and 7 went to the, the each flare burst caused the power and the solar rays to go down. At some point, your solar array current drops below what it is takes to keep your satellite going, and that's when you lose the satellite. Fortunately, again, about two years later, the uh, GOES 5, 6, and 7 solar rays and annealed. With time, if you heat the device, that ionization that's created in, in the solar arrays will tend to, to, or in a device, will tend to drift away, and they actually will self-anneal. That's why it Galileo, with it, it would go in and get irradiated and have real problems with its dosage, come back out, and then after, a, it sits there for about four or five months at, at Apogee, and then the, the thing would restore itself, and then we'd go back in again, and we were able to last a lot longer than we thought. On the right, by the way, in Mills, is the uh, dose that uh, was expected from the 1989 storm. Now, to give you just a reference point, a dose of uh, 500 rads, and this is kilorads over here, is enough to kill you. And uh, so be thankful that you're, that nobody was in that 89 storm. In fact, the 76 storm, which we talked about, occurred right between the Apollo missions. Uh, and uh, 
people were very fortunate that they were not out in the 76 storm. Uh, there is, I don't know if you know, read, read Michener's book, uh, Space. He describes uh, a case in his, his thing, the astronauts are on the moon when the 76 storm hits. And he describes them crawling back to the limb and dying as they get to the, to the level. Very dramatic. You might want to read that. <laughs> I, have a, a, I have a quick question. Uh, on the Juno spacecraft, I know that that's uh, in fairly high radiation environment around Jupiter uh, at the under, uh, on some of the low passes. Uh, is there any special kind of shielding that they're using for the yeah. electronics well, on first of, or first of all, uh, both for Galileo and to some extent for Cassini and primarily for Juno, we uh, put all the very sensitive stuff inside a thick box of shielding. So was that just aluminum or, or any other no, special? No, tungsten, tungsten. Oh, tungsten. Wow. Okay. And then the uh, other thing that we did was the orbit, uh, as, I, as, as I alluded to earlier, the orbit is polar. And the, the perijove is right over the surface of Jupiter. And therefore you miss, pretty much miss the horns of the radiation belts. The perijove, I mean, apajove is way out where there's no radiation. You come swinging in over the polar caps, you come down, you do brief real few minutes swing through the horns of the radiation belts and then you then you're over the surface and the equator of jupiter inside the radiation belts now what's happening is that with time the inclination of juno is slowly descending towards the equator and we expect within the next couple of, three or four years maybe i'm not sure how long i don't remember what the, the numbers are it's going to, it, it will move into the radiation belts big time, and that's when it will end. But the, uh, the main thing we did was all the very sensitive systems and such are inside a, basically a vault. They call it the vault and uh, are, are heavily protected. And then the uh, uh, solar arrays will probably, uh, probably, we believe will start seeing some degradation and then everything will go. But right now, it's it's still high enough inclination. It's not running through the radiation belts. That makes sense. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much. All right. Now here's here's an issue. First of all, there are lots of ways to calculate the radiation dose. One of the simplest things you can do is you calculate how many grams per square centimeter in any given direction at the point you're interested in. So you take a circuit board, you put yourself at the circuit board and you look outwards and calculate how much the shielding in that direction is. That's called a ray tracing code. And so you go outwards and when you get outside the spacecraft, you figure out what the ambient environment is and then you apply that ambient environment to the shielding and that tells you back at your point how much dose you're going to get. So that's called the inside out method or, or and inverse way of doing it. That's the simplest and quickest and dirtiest way. And there's FastRad and these programs listed down here on the right and the references that you can, you can do, you can go to. And that basically quick and dirty way of tracing what the radiation is. And we usually use that first off on designing the radiation shielding. We'll take a sensitive area, calculate back out uh, what the total shielding is, 
because you can take basically what you do is you you take the mechanical uh, drawing version of the model, figure out what the, the the density of all the materials are, and then do a ray trace, and then that gives you the dose. Now there are a lot more sophisticated programs. All, virtually all of these programs take the exterior environment and shoot random particles at your spacecraft. Now I want you to stop and think about what that means. Millions of your particles are not even gonna hit the spacecraft and a, a large fraction of those aren't gonna go anywhere near your part. So you have to tr literally trace millions and millions of trajectories, but it's precisely what's happening in nature. And so what these, th these things do is they do the, co the little cosmic ray showers. They go and they take every radiation particle or photon, gamma ray, whatever you're using, even from the RTGs, and they trace them towards the spacecraft. They, ran they assign a uniform direction, randomly determined uniform directions, and fire them at the spacecraft. And then over time, at each point in the spacecraft, you build up what, how much the particles are going to contribute to the dose. And what you're tracking is everything. Is each material, you figure out what the secondary emissions are and all that, and you do the complete physics. In particular, Giant 4 MCNP are full 3D detectors, and they're very slow for applications, as you can imagine. Uh, CRIM is a heavy ion model, strictly, and it's limited to a spherical shell aluminum shielding. That was what I was trying to point out. Trim is one dimensional only, and it only does Coulomb interactions, but it does protons and heavy ions. It's, these are all readily available programs, by the way. ITS Tiger is one that we often use, and that's electron photon physics. And so it does the, your gamma rays and everything like that and the cosmic rays. And it traces every physics step. I want to want to emphasize that you put a full 3D model of your satellite there and you track at each step, each little DX that you move, you figure out what you're hitting and what's created and it tracks all those bloody particles. Novice is the one we, we at JPL often use and it uses adjoint. Basically what it does is it does the same as the ray tracing, but on the way, it, but it starts at your point and as it goes out, it calculates all the secondaries and stuff when it gets out. And then when it gets out, it takes whatever the, the incoming flux is and then, and then calculates for each of the different surfaces how many secondaries and such would be created. No secondary neutrons are included though. So it's called adjoint. That's the other phrase for inside out is adjoint. And, but it's very fast for our design purposes. And so that's what we use a lot of. Then, so let's go to the next thing. This is when you clobber something. When a neutron or a heavy ion or something comes in, it can physically hit an atom. And when it hits that atom, it can create a vacancy as shown on the left there, knock things out. <laughs> or, and that, that atom in turn can knock things out. And so if you look on the right over there, you can see as the distance goes in, you, clob you basically are knocking things out and of their matrices. And for electronic devices, NPNP junctions, all that kind of CMOS, all that kind of garbage, their crystalline structure is very, very important. So you get a cascade damage in the silicon. Up until fairly recently, like about 10 years ago, displacement damage was not typically considered by people. And, but JPL 
has taken the lead in worrying about this. And because of the basic changes in semiconductor latencies and minority carrier, you can see here, basic changes in semiconductor latest structures are becoming very important. And particularly uh, for uh, not, they don't affect CMOS particularly, but they do the, the uh, other new technologies that are coming along. And so you like bipolar devices down here are very simple, are very sensitive to uh, displacement damage. So displacement damage is one of the other things that we take into account. You can see photonic devices particularly are also affected and nuclear power sources next to you can have big displacement damage issues. So displacement has become a concern for JPL in particular and for NASA in general. And I just wanted to mention that as another type, one of the other types of doses that we have to calculate. So here summarizes all the different types of device effects and the, the radiation effects and the device effects. There's TID, this is dose, and there's that enhanced low dose rate effect, severe radiation hardening assurance problem and linear bipolar devices. They're very sensitive to this low dose rate. In other words, you, if you test them at a mega rad and for a couple of hours, don't have a problem. You, t you fly them in space at 100, uh, a tenth of a mega rad, and they have a big problem. And so you can see that's a big issue. Then the single event upsets. Do remember, dose is energy deposited. Single event effects are ionization, basically. And you get protons and heavy ions, a variety of single particle effects. Uh, the biggest one is latch up. We really worry about latch up because it's ca catastrophic. If you don't shut the device down, it can melt, literally melt. And then the burnout is where you get one power, one transistor basically gets hit and there's enough energy from that one particle to cause it. The same with gate rupture. As a hard SU, it's frozen. That's how you lose bits in your memory. And then the single event functionality. That, th this is weird. And that's also down here, single event particle induced transients down at the bottom. What happens is you can hit a device like a PC and it'll go into self-check mode. That's what happened with the, uh, I believe is what happened with the uh, um, Planetary Society's uh, computers. But you basically set, you send signals. <laughs> if it hits the right spot, it'll, cause, it'll send a signal into the device and that device may cause it to uh, do something you don't want it to do. And they're seeing more and more of this as devices become much more uh, high density and complex. You basically can trigger instructions. And so that's <laughs> really a pain. You saw the displacement damage is basically billiard ball collisions. It, it knocks holes in things, literally. And it can transmute elements too, by the way. Uh, one of the big problems is uh, over time, uh, things like Voyager becomes radioactive, the, the glasses and stuff become radioactive from the cosmic rays. You actually transmute the elements with time. And we have to take that into account. And in fact, we do on, on Galileo, for example, we went through and figured out which ones would and which ones wouldn't and uh, changed out glasses and things like that. And finally, there's the microdose. That's the new thing where TID basically puts enough failure in a single little bit that it kills it. So these are some of the effects uh, and these are the types of radiation that cause them. And uh, I think that summarizes that. Here's the, to, to begin to conclude, here's some Teflon uh, second surface mirror uh, you can, from SCATHA that we flew. You can see with time this absorption 
was would change dramatically for radiation effects. You can see here on uh, on a I think it was uh, what was it? It was uh, oh Intelsat six. Uh, you can see the uh, long-term radiation damage causing one of the blankets to the uh, Kapton, I guess it was to uh, Teflon, I guess it was to fail. And you, you can see how you long-term E of E and uh, grads on the surface can cause the dimensions to change. You can see that down in the little Tedlar on the lower left there. The tensile strength, transmission reflectance, you can see this is white paint in the middle down there at GEO. Uh, they did geo exposure and the, the white paint turned brown. This is from the Chesnick at uh, Aerospace, so all these uh, samples. And here's a plot I did on the left for Star Wars. Um, what we were interested in was uh, where we were going to put the Star Wars <laughs> constellation. And if you plot all the, all the latest uh, little CubeSats and all that stuff, you can see for in, in terms of circular orbit, that most of them were below about 1,200 kilometers. Why? Because that's below the radiation belts. And you can see on the right there, the dose per day, and uh, only a few satellites, uh, they try, the, the, up there you can see ICO, AMC, I think ICO wasn't launched, but I think the others were. They tried to slip them in, in a minimum in the radiation belts uh, to get them up there. And then of course you have geosynchronous out there. So, that, and on the right there, you get an idea of what the dose looks like. Uh, polar Earth orbit, uh, Rimstrahlung, by the way, is all that secondary radiation that you get there. There's basically a maximum level against which you can shield. And all this, after that, everything is secondaries and uh, it forms a floor beyond which it, you have to go to huge, huge thicknesses to absorb it. And, uh, well, NEO is Middle Earth orbit. That's the worst environment. That's where the uh, GPS and such is. And then GEO, of course, is geosynchronous orbit. You can see the dose. And that's versus thickness down here. And we, we've done it in mils and grams per square centimeter for you. <laughs> you can see the typical spacecraft plus boxes approaches 100 mils. That's why we use the 100 mils. And you can see that uh, at polar Earth orbit, it's reduced, but you have to remember every so often you're going to get these solar proton events that peaks in the in the um, solar cycle, and uh, a really strong one like the 76 one can take your satellite out. So, on the lower left there, these are the things you can do. You can you have to define the shield radiation environment. You have to evaluate all your parts, and typically we screen them. JPL has a huge parts database that you can you you can ask them about and they generally will pr provide you the data on what uh, radiations they're sensitive to have by heavy ion and all that the single limit upset rates and that stuff then you do a worst case circuit analysis it turns out that uh, circuit analysis is very important because you can put bit flips as i showed you for galileo in there it has no effect because you're not reading those parts most of the time uh, and or you you can the parts constantly being rewritten uh, so you don't worry about them. And finally, you need to sh you figure out what to shield to provide to fit the parts performance requirements that you have. And finally, there are radiation tolerant circuits. These are circuits that as the parts get dose damage and as they their characteristics change 
all the parts change in such a way as to correct for the radiation damage. And such circuits do exist. And they're one of the ways that we tried to, we want to handle things for the interstellar flights and things like that. Uh, besides putting a massive amounts of shielding or using vacuum tubes, or as, as you mentioned before, the, the, heart, the uh, uh, magne magnetic memories. So that, this is the final, just to give you a feel for a Mars mission. This is solar proton event fluences for, uh, this is a, a typical mission to Mars and back for men, for a man. And uh, you land on Mars, stay there for a couple of months and you come back to earth. And it's about a two year mission. The thing I wanna point out to you is that when you calculate out that mission for the solar proton event doses, you can see that if you want to keep the dose below 100 mils, 100 uh, rads, you have to go up to well over an inch of shielding. Maybe you're talking about inches of shielding to protect the astronauts. Now, what one of the things they propose doing is putting uh, uh, bags, uh, changeable water bags where you move them around. And when, when there's a solar proton event, you push all the water out to the front uh, to the sides. By the way, this stuff is basically four pi steroidian radiation. But so you put it, push it out, and then you move it back to where you need to use it. And anyway, you move the shielding around. Is the bottom line. And, you, and on the space station, on the space station currently, they've actually developed little cloaks that the astronauts can wear uh, to protect themselves from the radiation. And I have pictures of myself wearing it. If you if anybody wants to see it. Okay, that's it for radiation. I'm gonna go fairly fast to the spacecraft charging and hopefully leave you a little time for questions. Uh, this is the bottom line picture that, that gives it all away. This is a geosynchronous orbit satellite and midnight you can see is down at the bottom. And this is for a European satellite that was not detected from spacecraft charging. And what you're seeing is the number of upsets versus local time around the orbit. Look at this, you can see that most of the, most of the uh, upsets occurred around 600 hours on here. And this is by year. Now here's when we looked at the actual data from that orbit we, in that region, we see the following. This is what's called a, a spectrogram. And what it is, the brighter it is, the more particles there are. This is energy down here around zero EV. Uh, we do electrons and protons inversely because the cold electrons and protons do exactly the same thing. They, they basically move in the magnetic, as we'll see in a second, move in the same way. However, there was a geomagnetic activity here as shown by this. This is a Maxwell Boltzmann distribution. These are photoelectrons down here. These are things coming off the surface. And all of a sudden there was a, an event a uh, substorm event where uh, particles were injected. This is the this is the low energy uh, lowest energy ions. Notice that they're not at zero. The reason is because the spacecraft was charged negatively about a hundred volts, and because it was charged a hundred volts negative, it was sucking the uh, uh, the ions in the protons in at about a hundred volts. And as you go along here, you can see that uh, when the plasma ejection occurred, the spacecraft went to a thousand volts negative. 
and suck the protons in. The high energy protons up here around 10,000, they don't see that, that voltage. But when you get over here, suddenly the spacecraft became negatively charged to 10,000 volts negative. At that point, the electrons were repelled. All the electrons were repelled, they just disappeared. And the ions, the cold ions are accelerated up to 10,000 EV and hit the spacecraft. And then you come out, you, you come, this is in, because you're in eclipse. Turns out that you went into solar eclipse at this point and the photoelectrons, which we'll see balance the uh, charge on the spacecraft went away. And the spacecraft was in the Earth's shadow and suddenly there were no photoelectrons and the spacecraft had nothing to balance and it charged. That's the basic process. And here's what we're looking at. If you look down on the Earth and towards the sun to the left, it, when you have a geomagnetic storm, particles are injected from the tail of the Earth. That is, the electric field of the Earth is intensified by the solar wind, and particles are V cross B, uh, moving in the V cross B field, but they see this electron, uh, dawn to dusk electron field, electric field, and that causes the particles to diverge. And in particular, you see the really cold electrons and ions going around towards dawn and around the dusk. The high energy protons, however, go to the left and the high energy uh, go counterclockwise, go clockwise. And the high energy electrons, however, go counterclockwise. And it's that pulse of ultra high energy electrons, typically around anywhere from 20 to 100 uh, keV electrons goes around towards dawn. And it's that intense pulse of electrons that cause spacecraft surface charging. Well, let's see if I can explain surface charging to you. Basically, if you put a satellite in a plasma, the plasma itself is made up of roughly equal numbers of electrons and ions. And what happens is the electrons and ions come in and they catch on the surface of the satellite. Sunlight shines on the spacecraft and reflects photoelectrons. The photoelectrons are about, oh, anywhere from a few EV to 20 EV, typically uh, peaking around three or four EV, um, like a uh, Maxwellian-like distribution. And they come off the satellite and they're like nanoamps per square centimeter. It doesn't sound like much. And when you integrate over a lot of square centimeters of a satellite, that becomes a lot. The uh, electrons and protons are, Electrons, for example, are about 10 to 100 times lower than that. The ions, on the other hand, are another factor of 100 down. The reason is because the current. The current is number times velocity. The electrons and ions have, the, have about the same energy with a factor of two. As a result of that, the electrons have 1,863, if I remember exactly, of the smaller mass than the protons. So guess what? one half mv squared for the electrons equaling one half mv squared for the protons gives you a ratio of roughly 40 to one. So electron current is 40 to 50 times more intense on the surface of a spacecraft than the protons at the same energy. Keep that in your mind. Now go to the right. On the right, this is just a laboratory experiment. If we take a plate and merge it immerse it in a plasma, and plasmas typically are, new, are considered to be neutral, even number of electrons and ions, because you don't, they suck them in from somewhere. 
you bias that plate, you find that if you bias the plate positive to the electron, the ions are repulsed. And so their current goes to zero. That's the little dotted line there. Whereas the electrons are sucked into the plate. And you can see to, as you go to the right, you can see that the balance current, I, if you, the third equation down there, the straight line, you can see that as the current, the current approaches the electron current to the surface. And that, so the electrons basically are absor uh, sucked in. If you go to the left, look what happens. Initially, the electrons start to come down, the ions are sucked in, and at some point, you get to the point where the, the electron and ion currents are equal, and that gives you the balance, that point where the voltage is, where the two currents are equal, that's where the satellite will float, or the plate will float. And when you get zero current to the satellite, if it goes either way, if one, one current is sucked in, then the thing will charge up to that to that that opposite sign. In other words, if we have protons, if we have positive surface, it's going to suck in electrons, and until the uh, uh, until they balance out and repel protons, and vice versa. So where current balance occurs, that's where the voltage of the satellite will float. It's like a probe, because if you go either way you're going to repel one species and absorb more of the other species. And so the satellite is driven towards current balance. In the case of sunlight, the photoelectron current is so much higher than anything else that typical satellite floats at about, about five volts, maybe even 10 volts uh, uh, positive. Whereas in, when you put it in a shadow, it's gonna balance primarily with whatever the mean energy of the electrons are. That's surface charging. Here's the actual detailed equations, and I'll show you how that works in just a second. Current balance is given by the total current to the satellite is the incoming electrons minus the incoming ions, the outgoing secondary electrons, outgoing those electrons that bounce off the surface, uh, uh, secondary ions that uh, produce secondary electrons, that's the SI, those are electrons coming back out. There are backscattered electrons that basically bounce off. The secondary electrons, uh, meant to say, are ones that are scattered back, whereas the backscattered ones are ones that are reflected back, and they come back off. Basically, the secondary electrons come off with a low energy spectrum, whereas the backscattered electrons come off with a uh, uh, almost the same energy they went in. And then finally, the photoelectrons. So that's current balance, that has to hold. Then in any volume of space, you have to have Poisson's equation. I'm not gonna go into it, but you have to have that. And then you have to solve for the time-dependent Boltzmann equation. Those three equations are how you solve for current balance and spacecraft charging. Now here's the, here's the trick. Turns out that if you have a surface immersed in a plasma, like a triode or a diode or anything, a, a diode, for example, and you bias the thing positive, you suck electrons towards the, the positive node. Now what happens is if the electrons go towards the positive node, they shield the electrons from, from the electric field behind them. In other words, the electrons to the right don't see 
as much of an electric field as the ones that go right up to the surface. The distance over which that falls off, one over E, is called the Debye length. In other words, it's the shielding distance. If you go one or two Debye lengths, you don't see the electric field on a surface in a plasma. It's shielded because the charged particles uh, uh, of one sign have been sucked in and they shield the other ones from it. But over that region, that Debye length, you can have charge imbalance. And that's where spacecraft charging comes from. Uh, I'm not gonna go into the, the solution at this point. In the longer course, I usually do. But you can see down there, the potential uh, is falls off. Uh, the Q falls off as one over R uh, minus R to the lambda D. And uh, normally a point charge would fall off as Q over R, but the E to the minus R over lambda D is the Debye length effect. So Debye length, when you have a dense plasma, becomes very important. Only within the Debye length can you have charging. Now the other extreme is you don't have very many particles. That's what happens at geosynchronous orbit. Uh, ionosphere, you have the you have the Debye length issue. At, at geosynchronous orbit, you have the opposite. There's not enough protons and electrons to, to do much. They don't shield each other. So look at the left, you can see your satellite. There's a characteristic distance at which a particle will impact that's attracted to the satellite will impact it. That's called the impact parameter. Basically, if you look at that lower curve down there, the RI, it's the distance at which a particle was not, which doesn't see the electric field as it falls into the electric field will just touch the satellite. That's the tangent there where it's touching to the satellite. That distance is called the impact parameter. Anything inside that distance will uh, electron if it's positively charged or a proton if it's negatively charged will strike the satellite. It'll be sucked into the satellite and contribute a current. So you work, you can work that distance out on the right. Energy conservation, one half mv squared in, 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 out in space is equal to one half mv squared over two times the potential drop. Likewise, the angular momentum, the distance, the, R, the ri basically, uh, mri has to be mrs vr over there. And so you take those two equations, you can solve them, and you can figure out what the impact parameter are is the impact parameter is proportional to the radius of the satellite times the uh, potential on the satellite over the kinetic energy and square root of that. And that's derived from those other two equations. So the current density of the satellite is basically I over four pi RS squared. You have what uh, you know what I is, it's, uh, J, it's basically J naught, uh, divided by the surface area at the satellite. And so then you multiply that by the, the, uh, amp, the focusing factor on the right. That's the one, two QVROS. And so you get what the uh, uh, current increase as a function of potential is to the satellite. This is called the thick sheath orbit limit current solution. And when I go to NASCAP, that's the assumption that they make is that any point on the satellite is behaving this way, that is that it's, it's absorbing particles from a, a specific impact parameter. Now, in reality, what we have to deal with is a thing called Louisville's theorem. That says that if I start with X particles on a 
on a trajectory here. The same number of particles will be created over here, but their energy, but they will be modified by their energy. In other words, I have to figure out what v prime v is the velocity is the magnetic is the velocity of the particles at, <clears throat> at infinity, and the v prime is the velocity of the particles at some point along a trajectory. So, by energy conservation, one half mv squared for spacecraft charging has to be equal to one half just what we just showed you before. That's energy conservation. So. The distribution function, this is a Maxwellian distribution function that I introduced at the beginning, implies that when you plug the above equation in, that you end up with the distribution function at the surface of the satellite is equal to the distribution function in space modified by this QV over KT. It's basically, if you go back to that Maxwellian equation and you plug that uh, energy conservation equation in, that's what you get for the Maxwell-Boltzmann distribution, where positive is for electrons, negative is for ions. Now, if you go down to the bottom down here, you integrating the phase space density to get the current density. Remember, I showed you how to get the current density. You find the following. You find that the uh, electron current at the spacecraft is equal to the electron current in, in ambient space, either QV over KT, that would be for the uh, for the attracted, and one plus QV over KT for the repelled. I'm sorry, it's the other way around. And uh, upper value is the repelled species, the bottom line is the attractive species, vice versa for the ions. <clears throat> so that's the, the those are the four equations that are basically used in spacecraft charging to first order to get what current balance is. So the current at the satellite for electrons and ions are, if it's if it's the repel species, it's the upper. If it's the attractive species, it's the bottom. Now, let's, let's use those values. So for a negatively charged spacecraft, writing those equations out, we find that the current to the spacecraft is equal to the current in the ambient environment for the ions that are repelled one minus QV over KT minus J naught E QV over KT for the electrons. That's the attractive species. Now I'm just take my word for it. Uh, QV over KT is basically the first order is zero because the uh, potential energy, uh, the voltage on the satellite is typically a lot less than the kinetic energy of the ions. And so we're going to make the approximation that that's zero. So for current balance, to find out what the spacecraft's going to charge to, we need the voltage. We need, for a given voltage, we need the current to go to zero, the total current. So this implies if you solve the upper equation for V, for, uh, v where, the, where the current JT goes to zero, if you put zero on that side, you come out with this following equation. What that says is that the voltage on the satellite is roughly proportional to the kinetic energy of the electrons times the log of the current of the ratio of the electron to ion current at in the ambient medium. Now, I'm going to show you the uh, uh, the data that supports that. I'm going to tell you that the Je over Ji in the ambient medium is often uh, the dominant term, but for uh, I'm going to show you what it looks like. 
This is just for the to, to show that the temperature works. This is a satellite potential in eclipse as observed. That's the observed potential. And this is the observed temperature of the ambient electrons. This is Maxwell Boltzmann fits to those third for the T average and TRMS values that I used for the ATS-5 and ATS-6 satellites. As you can see, there's a pronounced agreement with temperature versus potential. Now, the fact that it doesn't go through zero is because you have all these secondary particles and things like that. And I'll include those in the ne next couple of slides. And you'll see that, that indeed, I'm not gonna show you, but tell you that it does go through zero when you do that. So you come over here. What I did was I looked at number of eclipse passages. That is, that you remember that original plot I showed you, that spectrogram. You remember that all of a sudden the potential changed as the as the spacecraft went into darkness. As it goes into darkness, that's what's plotted along the time in minutes. That's the current that was observed. That's the potential that was observed as they went in to eclipse and then came out of eclipse for for the different satellites for different. Uh, different eclipse passages. The dot, the uh, dots, open dots are the observed. The black dots are my predicted using all the different terms and all the different uh, features. So I think I did a pretty good job. I published a paper on this showing that you can accurately predict the potential of a satellite that goes in and out of eclipse. And notice what the potentials are. They're up to as much as 10,000 voltage. That's a, on a surface on that spacecraft can charge to 10,000 volts. Now, when we get to SCATHA, I'm going to show you what it looks like with different surfaces on the spacecraft charged to 10,000 volts re relative to each other. <clears throat> Guess what? They arc and they blow out the satellite. They kill the satellite. Now, one last point. This is again shows you a major geomagnetic storm on the top and the electrons. Notice this cutout down here. That's because the point, the instrument measuring the electrons and protons was in a cavity. And what happened was the surface of the cavity became charged. It wasn't conductive. And as a result of that, as the particles, as the charge built up, the electrons were cut out. That's the bottom, that, that, that cut out. And then the protons alternately focused or, as the spacecraft spun would be focused or unfocused. And you can see the banding in them. And that's exactly described by assuming that charge built up on the side of the little sensor and caused the uh, different particles to get in. Of course, the higher energies didn't, weren't affected. Now, this is a typical model that people can make, that people have made of satellites. This is for binary Venus, where every node, those dots with the circles on them are external to the spacecraft. The other stuff is internal. So at each one of those points, there was a uh, resistor, a capacitor, uh, assumed and a current measurement. And the, that's each one of those letters stands for a current measurement. And all you can see all the resistors and inductors that they modeled for their spacecraft circuit model. And from that, they were able to calculate in detail the potentials all over the satellite. And we're going to see that in this following movie. Now, this is the SCATHA program, Spacecraft Charging at High Altitudes Mission. I'm going to walk away for a minute. This is about a five minute movie and uh, want you to watch it and um, hopefully you can hear it. Now, this is some of the results from the movie. I'm, I'm sorry, from the SCATHA program and you're gonna see this in the movie. This is where we saw the high 
uh, probabilities potentials, the cross-hatching areas there. And again, you can see the highest potentials were uh, in the midnight to dawn area. And then the dots are where we have discharges. Now I call your attention to all the discharges near local midnight, which is what we expected from surface charging. The dots around the other side are from a different cause, cause internal electrostatic discharge. And we'll go into that in a little more detail in a minute. And this is to give you some idea. Uh, they had a discharge monitor on one of the lines on the spacecraft. And unfortunately, we didn't measure above 7.4 volts, but there are definitely voltages well above that. These are the number of pulses and their amplitude that we saw on a wire inside the spacecraft from the discharges on the external part of the spacecraft. And these, uh, you know, several volts, you know, seven volts is certainly in the range enough to do serious damage to your spacecraft circuitry. Fortunately, actually, Scatha was knocked offline three or four times, to totally turned off. We had fail-safe mechanisms that if the spacecraft was shorted out, it came back on again uh, after a few minutes. There was a, a separate uh, thing that turned it back on. And we had to use that because the spacecraft was literally knocked offline by the discharges going in and out of eclipse. Now, this is what the Scatha satellite looked like. This is the, the, the NASCAP model that you're going to see different materials. All those different materials on the left are listed there. And this is the simple model they made. And here it goes. This is the NASCAP computer model of the SCATA spacecraft. It has a central cylindrical body with four long booms sticking out and several scientific instruments. The SCATA satellite was designed to study spacecraft charging. Orbiting spacecraft always build up electric charges simply from being in space. Depending on the space environment, this may or may not cause problems. If the charging gets severe enough to cause spontaneous electric discharge, satellite operations can be interrupted. A spacecraft is surrounded by electric and magnetic fields and it is constantly bombarded from all directions by charged space particles. These space particles, electrons and ions, shower the entire spacecraft's surface. At certain locations, SCAVA has particle detectors to count the incoming particles. SCAVA also carries particle emitters, field sensing devices, and material charging monitors. The particle detector illustrated here can rotate to sense particles from various directions. It is these particles landing on the spacecraft that cause spacecraft charging. In a quiet environment such as this, charging problems are minimal. But in an extreme environment, the ions and electrons become much more energetic and can cause costly discharges. To illustrate electric potential, we pass an imaginary plane through the spacecraft and draw contour lines around it. Each line marks an area of equal electric potential in space. These potentials are shown in volts. The line farthest out shows a potential of minus two volts. The one right next to the spacecraft 
is at minus 7 volts. Where the lines are close together is where the electric fields are the greatest. The peak value is the largest potential. This is at the satellite surface. That shows the potential difference between adjacent contour lines. We move the imaginary plane up and down to show you the potentials all around the spacecraft. The sophisticated SCADA experiments are constantly monitoring the electric potentials, both on the spacecraft and in the surrounding space. In a moment, we will show you a sudden change from quiet environment to substorm environment. This will cause a rapid accumulation of charge on the spacecraft. As the charge increases, the contour lines will appear to multiply and explode outwards. The peak and step values will quickly increase by three orders of magnitude. Here it comes. During the substorm, charging occurs in two separate phases. In the first phase, potentials increase suddenly to several thousand volts. But in this phase, the contours still have the same shape. They follow the boom outlines, and no discharge occurs. The second phase lasts longer and results in discharge. Let's go in for a Hopefully you got that message that spacecraft surface charging is significant. 
Here's from SCATHA. They had little isolated surfaces on SCATHA. One was Kapton. And as the satellite ro rotated about a minute uh, RPM, you can see the potential and the potential versus the uh, spacecraft overall potential versus the surface potential of that sample oscillated by 1.5 kilovolts. And the NASCAP predictions do very well. The only thing I wanna warn you about on this is materials in space rapidly age and you need the instantaneous properties of the materials to do a really good job of calculating surface charging. And so that's, a, that's one problem that we have with these models. This shows you the Galileo spacecraft. We used NASCAP to design the, where the instrument placements were, for example. If you look along that boom, you can see that the potential contours run along the boom. Now, what they were originally going to do is they were going to put the instruments, the particle detectors, looking out along the boom. And what we to told them to do was they needed to look perpendicular to the boom, even though the gradient was higher that way. The bottom line is you know what the gradient is, whereas along the boom, you don't know where the particles are coming from. So we were able to make a significant change in the orientation of the plasma detectors on Galileo just by doing that. You can see the other high level areas where the uh, contours are very high, where we expected high levels of charging. And we took, took that into account in the design. This is what it looks like when you have an arc discharge on the surface of a spacecraft. Um, there's the arc discharge on Mylar. And then you can see it being blown up to where it's 10 microns across on the right. And you can see it does significant surface change. This is the peak current, for example, from some tests that we ran with a specimen area, uh, depending on the larger the area, the bigger the uh, uh, current peak, as you can imagine. It's like a funnel. Uh, the bigger the area, the more current comes in from the farther out and um, it funnels down to the middle of the funnel. So it's like rain. Uh, if you have a funnel, the bigger the funnel, the more the charge comes in. These are some other issues uh, for space station. This is the solar array from space station in the ionosphere. You can see that the contours are crea created uh, are not very high. It's, a, it's most tens of volts. But, how, but uh, if you uh, put a body back there, that body is not uh, immersed in the plasma. And so it can charge pretty much to whatever it wants to. For example, if you put Aurora Borealis on, uh, on a near polar orbit, which the space station does, and we do have this problem, you can charge bodies up to several hundred volts in the wake of the big solar arrays. And then if you bias it, for example, doing an experiment or something, the, there's no control uh, from the ambient environment of that except from the, from the aurora, and you can get very high potentials. Astronauts, for example, can be charged up. And we, have, we use a, a plasma uh, device to flood that region in there with low energy plasma to keep the astronauts from charging up. And so that's one thing that we managed to do on the space station. Even so, it does have weird uh, effects. <clears throat> Here's an actual example of going through the Aurora on the DMSP satellite at 800 kilometers. You can see on the left, the current as a function of time is measured by the satellite. And in the bottom line, you can see the uh, charge on the satellite as it went through. The yellow on the right is the picture that the satellite took showing that it is passing through the auroral arc. And so you're getting up to uh, several hundreds of volts even on a low altitude satellite like that. 
This is, gives you a distribution of the uh, aurora uh, relative to the magnetic axis pole of the Earth. You can see near midnight <clears throat> is where the maximum auroral occurrences are. It's only a few percentage of the time, a quarter of a percent. If you, uh, the red is a quarter percent of the time. But even so, the aurora can cause damage. As shown here. Uh, I was given the problem of figuring out what happened to the, the JPL Adios Midori satellite. And the first thing I looked at was the aurora. And sure enough, when the satellite, 20 minutes after, the, after an aurora occurred, the satellite failed. On the right, you can see the, the so-called KP index, which measures the, aurora, the uh, geomagnetic activity at the Earth. And you can see where the uh, Midoriya power drop occurred. So bottom line is geomagnetic activity very clearly wiped out the Midori satellite uh, as it passed through the aurora and caused us a lot of pain. Uh, one final feature, I'm not gonna go too much into this, but if you take a solar array and you have little wires between the solar arrays that are not coded, what you find is you scan across the surface up to about hundred volts, uh, you see whatever the voltage is at that wire. And it goes basically, basically stays around zero till you go over the little wire and then it goes bangs back and forth. And for um, negative voltages, that's ions are, extract, subtract, are attracted. So you see that on the right. For positive voltage, electrons are attracted. But if you go over about 300 volts, something very strange happens. It turns out that electrons, when they come in, knock out a cloud of particles. And that cloud of particles shorts out the surface and you get what's called snapover. The whole surface, if it's negative, if it's positively charged, looks like it's negative. And it looks like it's a one conductive surface. On the other hand, for protons, you start to get arcing at three or 400 volts between the, the little uh, wire and the surface. So you're damned if you do and damned if you don't. This is what that arcing looks like. This is a European Eureka solar array panel that was brought back. Anyway, this is a guideline for you. Uh, this is a chart we've developed that tells you as a function of latitude for a circular orbit where you're liable to uh, pa pass through regions of high voltage. The Earth is the worst uh, environment for surface charging in the solar system. And it can get up to as much as 20, 20,000 volts. Some people have claimed 50,000 volts. And the, you can see basically this is the aurora extending down to this is the latitude. Basically what you do is plot your orbit in terms of altitude and latitude on this plot. And you can tell when, when you're gonna run into high voltages. So this is a tool that you can use to determine space surface charging. Now to test for it, we have an arc discharge. We use the one on the left, the one on the right's the official arc. We use the one at JPL on the left. You walk around the satellite and you arc it and to see if it responds. We did that with Voyager and by golly, it did. <laughs> it blew out the computer. <laughs> so we had to go in and filter it and do all sorts of things. But even so, we had 42 power on resets when we went through the internal radiation belts at Jupiter, which we'll see in a moment. So IESD, this is the final thing we're gonna do. And I'll try to get this done in well, it looks like I'm not going to make four o'clock. Sorry, uh, it should be only about 10 to 15 more minutes. If you look at the number of uh, anomalies on satellites as recorded by Aerospace Corporation, you'll see that the vast majority of those are called, caused by a process called internal electrostatic discharge, IESD, up on the left over here. Now, 
I'm going to show you a film of this in just a moment. But what I want to call your attention to is on the chart on the left, which you've seen before, if you put 100 mils of shielding, you can see that electrons of about one, one MeV will penetrate to that depth, whereas it's only about uh, one, uh, whereas it takes about uh, 100, let's see, what is it, 30 to 40 MeV of protons. And the flux at 30 to 40 MeV protons is much, much lower than electrons in any case. And so you, you find happens is, as we discussed before, the electrons build up charge in the interior of the body. I'll show you the uh, sample the, after the movie's over. On the left, I'm gonna show you how you create, it's called a Lichtenberg pattern. These were discovered in the 1700s. And down on the bottom, you can see uh, for the Star Trekker upsets for an aerospace mission, that whenever the electron rate went over, a certain right, the three MeV electron peaked, there was a discharge on the spacecraft, the upsets, those are those little arrows. So what we're gonna look at is why do you get that Lichtenberg pattern and what it is? This is what a Lichtenberg pattern is. If you take and you take a slab and you expose it to uh, electrons coming into the screen, it's gonna build up a layer of charge in there. And when you hit it, this is what's gonna happen, whoops. Didn't click the right spot. That's a Lichtenberg pattern. <laughs> I'll watch it. It's discharging. Now, what was that? Well, what's going on is that charge, the electron charge builds up. And at some point, it about 10 to the 7th volts per centimeter, when it gets to that high a voltage between that and the surface, if you tap it, electron will pop out. That electron leaves a little ionized path. So two electrons will pop out. And then you get what's basically inverse lightning. You get that pattern up in the right there. So you can see where you where uh, a discharge occur starts to occur at the bottom. And then all the charge is drained out. Like inver instead of going from bottom up to top, it comes from the comes from the top all the way down to the bottom, and it's in think of it as inverse lightning. All the, the charge comes out along these pathways and discharges the volume. So this is the what we do to predict that. On the left is the rate electron radiation belts at the Earth. On the right is when the total or fl charging flux under 30 mils of aluminum as a function of picoamps per square centimeter. We find that when you get 10 to the 10th or 10 picoamps per, uh, when you get 10 to the 10th electrons uh, per square centimeter, that's a, which is equivalent to picoamps per square centimeter, you'll find in less than 10 hours, you'll get an electrostatic discharge. Sure, and that's what you saw in Scatha around near noon and stuff. This is the result of the buildup of charge as a function of the radiation belts. Along the bottom is the circular orbit altitude, and along the left is the inclination of the satellite. So you plot your inclination and your altitude on here, and you'll find out what you, what how many picoamps you're going to get, and from that you can calculate uh, what 
likelihood of a discharge is. You get more than 10 to the 10th electrons per square centimeter, you're dead and it'll discharge. Now, th this is Galileo internal electrostatic discharge program. Up on the right, you see the comparison of the spectra of Jupiter versus Earth. It turns out that at Earth, the electrons don't peak as well as Jupiter. At Jupiter, this electron spectrum is much stronger than the, the uh, proton spectrum. And so we get the Earth's electron spectrum is much harder. Therefore, as we approach Jupiter, we're much more likely to get IESD than we are at Earth. And so that was a major concern for Galileo, given that we had 42 of these upsets on, on Voyager and almost lost the mission. So just keep that in mind. The bottom are some of the test arcs that we use to test the satellite. So to finish up, uh, for spacecraft charging, you want to ground all conductive spacecraft elements, particularly on the external part and also in the internal that you can. You want to use as much conductive surface material as possible. They even coat uh, solar arrays with indium tin oxide, which is a conductor. You shield all circuits that you can with a Faraday cage. You basically put a wire mesh around it. Filter circuits near ESD sources where you might get IESD or surface charging. Develop and document all procedures. Now the leading documents on this are mine and Whittlesey's book, Guide to Mitigating Spacecraft Charging Effects. That's available online or available through Amazon. And the, our latest handbook that we all, they updated the one that Whittlesey and I originally wrote, this version B is now available at this place down here. It goes into great detail on both of these concepts. These are some of the materials you want to use and don't want to use. On the left are the materials you don't want to use. Uh, fiberglass is terrible. Paints, most white paints are terrible. Uh, mylar, uncoated, is too high. Teflon, too high. Kapton, uh, Anyway, you get the idea, any kind of non-conductive material, including white paints. What, black paints are pretty good because you can put carbon in them and that's conductive. And so you use carbon black, you use uh, yellow, some of the yellow paints are good. Indium tin oxide, as I mentioned, uh, zinc orthonate paint and alodyne. That's it. And I'm going to go real quick through my conclusions. Why do we care? Obviously environmental effects are really dangerous to your expensive satellites and many of the effects are still unknown. What do you do? You design to try to avoid them by using my integrated approach that I mentioned. You build adequate test, build and require adequate testing. We re recommend engineering test models. Though. Most people can't afford that. Flight, during flight, you evaluate the effectiveness of your mitigation methods and you use those results to update everybody's understanding of those effects. Most people won't tell you why their satellite failed, and that's terrible. Then finally, design procedures. Identify the requirements based on the trajectory and requirements. Rate the environments versus the interactions. Identify the design trade-offs and for the most critical environmental concerns. Establish weight, cost, complexity criteria. Optimize the combination design choices. Finally, evaluate the resulting designs. Finally, I recommend flying garlic cloves on your satellite. Okay, <laughs> that's pretty much it. Here's some for you. Here's some basic uh, books. Most of this unfortunately changes with real time. So you'll have to redo it. And that's it. Uh, I'm gonna stop sharing. And
I want to show you this. I don't know if you can see this, but this is a, a facsimile of a cable. And they shined electrons in from one side. And by the way, this is the way they cure electron cables. They use one MeV to two MeV electron beams and they build up charge in the cables and they can explode while they're sitting on the ground like this. And so it's, um, I, I've listened to IEEE meetings where all they did was discuss about don't do it, <laughs> don't, don't, don't cure your cables using electrons. So that's it, I'm ready for questions. Somebody got a question? Thank you, this is amazing. Yes, I think Tasha raised hand. Tasha, do you want to speak out? Your mic is enabled. Yeah, go ahead, tell us. Hi, I had a question for um, your trapped radiation belts diagram, like a few, quite a few slides ago. I was just wondering, um, maybe you could pull it up real quick, but uh, there's- I have, to, I have to go back to sharing, just a minute. Yeah, sure. Um, but so for the earth one, there was quite an asymmetry between the left side and the right side. I think it was slide 38. 38, okay, let me see if I can get there. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah maybe the arrows on your computer keyboard might be fast but yeah. i don't know <laughs> yeah, let's do this let's do it this way come on i could do it this way this one um 38 oh maybe it's not updated on my zoom yet is it trapped radiation belts what is it which one is it yeah it is that one but um Slide eighty four is still showing up on Zoom. I'm sorry, I I didn't catch what you said. Um, it is that trapped radiation belt one, but for some reason, slide eighty four is still showing up on Zoom. Oh, I, I your sharing is paused. Why is it paused? I don't understand. You should be able to just click play, maybe. I'm trying. Participant has enabled closed caption. Who can? Let me see. What's, what's this? Let me try stop share again. Let me try sharing again. Okay. That it? Yeah, that one right there. Um, so I was wondering, is it because of the solar wind that in this picture would come from left to right that makes the left? No, 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 no. no. What the left side? is the protons, the right side is the electrons at those energies. And they're symmetric all the way around. They would be donut shaped. Oh, okay. So how come Jupiter doesn't really, so for Jupiter it's, it's the same on, for protons and electrons? They're not, they're not. Look carefully, they're not, and they're different energies. One is 10 MeV and one is one MeV. Oh, I see. So is, um. Oh, okay. So like it's symmetrical, just it's different for protons and electrons. Yep. And you you have to, I'm sorry, you have to rotate those around. They're donut shaped. The, the, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Thank you. So how did you um, develop these? Like what data did you use? Was it from oh, like the Like the people that did the Earth's model, I gathered all the data I could from all the different satellites that was formed by, unfortunately for Uranus and Neptune and Saturn, at the time, only Voyagers flew, well, Voyager and Pioneer flew by Saturn. So I had several satellites there. Uh, Uranus and Neptune, I only have Voyager 2 uh, flew by. And uh, so what you do is you take and you calculate where they are in B and L coordinates. 
In other words, where they, you want to know how far they are, you, you assume a model for the magnetic field, which you get from the magnetometers. All of these have had their magnetic fields measured to some degree. So you can calculate the dipolar field shape. And then what you do is you, since both Uranus and Neptune are, ex, the magnetic fields are extremely canted relative to the, uh, to the, the spin axis, you have to put the, the data into what's called B and L coordinates. B is the magnetic field strength at the point, and L is the field line that it's on. And so you accumulate all the data that you have, um, spectra at that point, and you average them together. And then you do that uh, for all, all the B and, L, B and L coordinates that you can. And then you move, if you have the pitch angle distribution, which I did, you can move those back down to the equator and assume that the uh, you know the distribution along the magnetic equator for B, as a function of L and B. And then you, after you average all the data together, you then have along the magnetic field line, since you know the pitch angle distribution, you know the uh, uh, distribution of the fluxes along the field line. I didn't go into that, but knowing the pitch angle allows you to, to determine uh, what the fluxes would look like at the equator. Oh, okay. So for planets like Mars, Venus, Mercury, these wouldn't exist because there's no magnetic field there? That's correct. Uh, Mars, though, that they found that there are sporadic <clears throat> magnetic components uh, in the surface, and they've seen sporadic aurora over them. Oh, interesting. Thank you so much. Same for the moon, by the way. <laughs> okay, any more questions? I yeah. think I haven't worn everybody out yet. <laughs> I have a quick question. Uh, so for interplanetary uh, uh, spacecraft, the uh, uh, spacecraft charging is not as much of a problem as in the uh, Earth orbit or planetary orbits like not, Jupiter? Well, not the surface charging. I've done spacecraft charging calculations and, des and designs. I actually did on Cassini. I went, they allowed me to go around the spacecraft and have them put conductive blankets wherever I thought there would be charging. Uh, basically at the earth, you can get up to 20 more kilovolts and that's between light and dark. On Jupiter, you can get uh, several thousand volts uh, we, because of the aurora. They have very intense aurora on Jupiter and every once in a while you'll run through an aurora out at, at Europa or in towards Io. And there also is something called, v uh, called a V cross B effect. Each of the moons, because it's moving through the magnetic field, creates an electric field that causes an aurora associated with that moon. All, all four of the big moons have uh, auroral spots on the surface you, you can see actually identify on both hemispheres. And those, those cause uh, a, a beam. And so Jupiter is second. And Saturn, I got up to like four or 500 volts for, for uh, some, some strange cases that I did. Though it turns out that the ring is where you would expect a lot of the charging in the ring. Uh, Jupiter's, Saturn's rings wipe it out to a certain extent. Same thing at Jupiter, by the way. They were wipe out the radiation belts. There's a, there are rings at all the planets, uh, Neptune, Uranus, uh, Saturn, and Jupiter. And uh, they tend to put gaps in the rings, in the uh, radiation belts. 
but during transit, the, uh, the the charging is is not as much of a problem, correct? No, no. Like I said, in the solar wind, it, the most I've ever seen uh, people report is like 40, uh, 40 volts uh, positive. And uh, the problem that you have in the solar wind is that there can be a dense plasma, and you have a magnetic field, and so you can get electric fields for very large body. We've had to do spacecraft plasma. Uh, models for all the big solar sails, because you're talking about kilometers size bodies, and they create uh, uh, plasma gaps behind those things. And if you have any kind of biasing, like with a, they're talking about using big solar arrays, and the solar arrays can get up to kilovolts, and there's enough plasma in the solar wind that it can interact with the solar wind, the, the high voltages, and you can get arcing, as I was trying to show you with the snapover phenomena and stuff. Yeah. Uh, and with, uh, for example, uh, uh, in the uh, in the uh, transmitters for some of the uh, uh, spacecraft, the uh, klystrons, which uh, rely on an electron beam that uh, that's magnetically focused and accelerated and so forth, yeah. uh, does that electrostatic charging on the spacecraft have any impact on on those devices, or or will a Faraday cage pretty much uh, block that? Worse than that, they cause what's called multipacting. Uh, the, it turns out that if you get a plasma from the ambient environment inside it, and traveling wave tubes in particular, tweeters, what will happen is that uh, if it's oscillating at the right frequency, uh, the electrons, for example, will hit one wall, and then they'll be accelerated towards the other wall, and they'll knock off more electrons, and you get a cascade, and you get many dB uh, loss. SCATHA, for example, when it was first launched, the, the Twitter cut out because of this plasma interaction. We had discussed it. That's what was bad. We, we, we had taken it into account, but then nobody, nobody actually corrected it. And it turns out that that will burn the walls. Of, and once it burns the walls, it goes out of resonance. <laughs> oh, that's bad. <laughs> yes, but it works. <laughs> it worked on SCAT, but it burned the wall, and it came back to its full, full magnificence. All these things interact. And like I said, as we're going to higher and higher voltage satellites, for example, they want to fly 20 kilovolt plus uh, satellites around the Earth to beam power back to the Earth at geosynchronous orbit. And uh, those are going to react mightily. In fact, it turns out that the amount of ion propulsion, uh, argon is about the only thing you can use on that scale that we have enough of to propel them out there. And the argon will replace the oxygen atomic. It will replace the oxygen plasma and stuff in the magnetosphere, and substantially change the shape of our magnetosphere <laughs> just from using the ion engines. <laughs> so, so will, uh, for example, with the magnetrons, I believe those have been proposed for the uh, uh, power satellites. Will, will those be impacted uh, in, in the same way? Well, it depends on whether they're exposed to the environment or not. That's the that's the issue. Because uh, if you can get plas if you can get plasma in there. And uh, there are lots of ways to get plasma into things, and um, you're going to have problems. As, as it boils down to that, if if you if you put a Faraday cage around it or something, then you're probably okay. But um, radiation is a different issue. Obviously, it'll penetrate. Uh, our biggest problem at low Earth orbit. I'll talk in another talk is atomic oxygen. It eats everything away. Uh, they brought back surfaces from the LDEF after five years, and there was no plastic on the front of the satellite. It was all eroded away. Yeah, it's pretty corrosive. Well, thank you very much. Okay.
Um, and if folks online, if you want to uh, uh, ask questions, speak out, please, please raise hand. Uh, we have a question here from uh, Martin, uh, Mr. Horowitz. Uh, what mitigation can you use on analog circuits? I'm sorry, say that again. What mitigations can you use on analog circuits? Oh, analog circuits. All right, well, I guess the problem with an analog circuit is they're fairly hard. <laughs> and from the standpoint of it's basically, uh, I would assume it's typically like re uh, resistances, potentiometers, things like that. Uh, the analog circuits that I'm thinking of and vacuum tubes, things of that nature, um, they, uh, they're pretty hard. I mean, that's the way we used to go. And now it's the digital circuits that have most of the problems because of the, the uh, silicon and because of the, uh, the way the devices work. I would say that for analog circuits, you're, you're fairly robust as best as I remember. And uh, like, like the discussion we had at the beginning, if you, know, you use uh, uh, vacuum tubes for analog circuits, if I remember a lot, and uh, can you give me an example of an electronic part that you might use that, I mean, resistors are relatively hardened. And uh, so you don't typically see much effects on those. They, they, some are, but most of them don't. Diodes, I guess, are pretty hard. I would say no. I'd say that the analog circuits are, are in, them, in and of themselves typically harder than digital circuits. Well, I could be. I see. Uh, there is a question from Mr. Seiya, uh, Mr. Shimizu. Uh, he said he had a question about the correlation charts of step one to, uh, through step three. I'm not so sure which the chart number. It talked about the correlation. All right, let's go back. These, I guess it's one of these. Uh, well, he, I don't know if he sees online, let's see. Yeah, he said yes. Okay, what's what's the question then? What I did here was, uh, in my opinion, and this assessment is very dependent on the spacecraft design. For example, take the neutral atmosphere. Uh, neutral atmosphere through drag and through, uh, causes torques and it will cause atmospheric glow and it can cause uh, surface damage by you know eroding the surfaces. Uh, take ma uh, magnetic electric fields, V cross B effects. If you have a large space tether or even a large uh, solar array, you'll, which we saw on uh, uh, Juno. Juno's solar arrays, for example, the magnetic field that Jupiter is so intense that as it rotates, you get a, a, a fairly robust electric field produced, I like this, if I remember, like upwards of 600 volts as it rotates. I don't remember the exact number. Right, right off the top of my head. I have the numbers. I did a study of it. But the uh, turns out that the, v cro that the V cross B, the velocity of the satellite relative to the magnetic field, and as it's spinning, induces uh, large electric fields. So that's why I put a big X there. And, and similarly, magnetic and electric fields cause torques on satellites. You come down to the aurora plasma, it's primarily responsible for surface charging. And uh, Internal charging is, brought, is mainly due to uh, trapped radiation. And whereas total ionizing doses, again, trapped radiation and solar proton events. Uh, galactic cosmic rays don't really cause much dose. Whereas single event upsets, 
are very much associated with the proton belts, GCR, and solar proton events. Does that help? That's that's what I was trying to say. And you do this for each mission. And uh, I, one of my slides was bad, I noticed. But uh, what I was trying to do was uh, show you the, how you take those. So that's the correlation there. Now here uh, on step two, what I was looking at is clearly you can use shielding to, to affect dosage. You can position things inside or outside the satellite to shield them. You can do circuit design changes. You can change them, uh, pick parts that have a large margin or are hard, or you can do change the trajectory. So like what you know, you don't go through the radiation belts or go over to uh, surface damage. Uh, you can help that by positioning things so they're not in the front with ram direction for atomic oxygen erosion, or you can use them for material, you can change the material properties. So you only put uh, uh, metals in the front of the spacecraft. And finally, you can change the trajectory so you don't go through the, <laughs> the, the oxygen region. Does that make sense? That's how I did my correlations. Yeah, he said it makes sense. Uh, but he also asked, is there uh, any paper or book you can refer to about these tables? I'm trying to remember. I think, I'm trying to remember where I published them. I think the tables themselves were published. They were used in specific mission design studies. Uh, I don't think I ever published a report per se on them, uh, except uh, trying to think, is it in my book? No, I don't think I put them in the book. So I don't. I, so I think what you're getting here is is basically they're they're just tools that I designed and I use them. I specifically used them on given missions. I like for solar probe. I did a and, well. You saw them. I I was trying to. For some reason, I that this this is the wrong one. I reduplicated. There's a different plot for that. Um, but anyway, here uh, you can see what I did. I used uh, uh, I used Europa and Pluto and Solar Probe, and just tried to guess. It's it's just a tool. It's not uh, meant to be a uh, meant to, meant to be a, a report type thing. Okay. Yeah, very good. Yeah, he says thank you very much. Uh, he cannot speak out in this uh, environment, so uh, he and his chart. Um, there was a question from BK, but I think you answered it. He basically was asking what is the difference between the uh, radiation from the sun and the cosmic. Uh, I think you mentioned it. Yeah, I was trying. To, what I was trying to show is that typically. There's slightly there's different compositions, and the, what I didn't show and I should have is I, in my in my more extended talks, uh, what I usually do is I show to the left, uh, from about here. Can you see this? Yeah. Yeah. One AU cosmic ray nuclear species spectrum. Yeah. yeah. From can you see my pointer? Yes, ISM GCR. Yeah. If you move. If you move to the left from about 100 MeV, actually you can see where the peak is from here over, it is affected by the, the, the solar proton events. They, they come down like this. In other words, the spectrum is like this. This is the uh, absorbed GCR interstellar. And this is then the, uh, 
and I have I have the plot to the left. I just didn't show it, and on, on other plots. And what I was trying to show was, uh, let me see. I was trying to show here is the these are actual spectra for 10 MeV, and then you come here. And let's see, where is it? Anyway, that's what the, I do have the solar proton and I didn't I didn't include a picture, I'm sorry. I do have plots of the uh, if to ask them if they're if they're interested to have them email me and I can send them uh, my papers on the uh, solar GCR versus the uh, interplanetary GCR interstellar. <laughs> Basically, is is the uh, the the particles from galactic origin will be much different from what's coming from the sun. Well, it's you know, the energy. It's the energy range. The the solar yeah. protons typically are not anywhere near the uh, energy of the uh, the galactic GCR. Okay, um, I think they, that, don't, they don't penetrate the heliopause. That was the problem. Okay. Um, there might be, uh, I think there's one or two more, but I, I, there's a question I uh, uh, need to relay. Uh, it is actually from our technical chair, uh, Mr. Gary Moore. He's a retiree from, uh, he, he was involved in Apollo, uh, Viking, and the Voyager. Uh, he asked me to kind of mention it, but I think you, you cover everything, but I just try to uh, mention it. He, he said uh, he, said he uh, worked on missions that has severe launch environment heavy into the Earth's atmosphere. Also, uh, designed for high EM environments, uh, had either full sun or shade, landed on Venus or Mars, orbited Saturn, as well as Voyager that is now in their uh, spaces. And uh, he basically was uh, uh, asked me to see if you can address, you know, the design uh, environment, uh, how to evaluate uh, and qualify the spacecraft. I think you kind of. Uh, mentioned those code and testing, so it kind of explained it. Um, so, so I kind of want to add it, it, it kind of this is that uh, um, for those kind of testing uh, environment as you described, um, how much percentage in, in a spacecraft design uh, that uh, they typically in the mission that people put into? For example, if now uh, some company was designing a satellite or JPL, you also mentioned Europa. So say the, uh, uh, the uh, it is Europa, uh, the Creeper is the APL, is the APL project. Uh, how much effort do they actually go, go through all the thorough uh, uh, testing, evaluation, simulation in order to test all the aspects, different angle, different type of proton. Okay. Uh, I got the idea. <laughs> I can explain. First off, the most severe environment of all is the launch environment. Okay. okay. And we at JPL, I mentioned the Galileo mission. They were testing in the launch environment when they over-tested and broke the antenna. And we have big anechoic chambers in which we vibrate and shake the hell out of things. We actually record the with big speakers and stuff, the uh, launch environments. I've been I've been involved in lightning strikes on the Apollo. What we do uh, on uh, shake, rattle, and roll, and I mean, in, in thermal environments, everything is, is simulated as best you can. 
if you're flying a $2 billion mission or more, you do everything you can. I mean, class A and class B missions are, are tested till they fall apart, basically. And ideally, we, we'd like to make an engineering model and test that. But um, the, way, the way of NASA now bidding things, you typically can't include an engineering model, not know anything about what they did for SCUs and such. I'm sure some of our people probably helped them, but I can't give you specifics. Would, I, the, would, would the cryogenic uh, temperatures that it operates at, would that have any effect on the sensors in terms of the uh, sensitivity oh, to those? No. To those uh, yeah, worse than that, the uh, spacecraft charging, the IESD is extremely bad because the charges are, uh, the materials become less conductive and such, and this charge is easily stored in the, in the cold stuff. And they had to take a lot of special steps to test at really cold temperatures to see what the conductivity and everything was. And same with radiation dosage effects. Um, if you freeze stuff, the, the uh, uh, dose effects can be worse because uh, basically if you warm things up, the, uh, uh, the, current, uh, the charges that are buried in the device will drift away and you anneal. There's a lot of self-annealing that goes on in, in spacecraft and you don't have that so much on JWST because it's so cold. And of, I guess you knew that they got hit by a big meteor that they weren't expecting. And um, it did some damage. Uh, fortunately, they, it, it, they were able to correct for it. But right off the bat, they got hit by one. I did measure that environment for Star Wars uh, on the way to the moon with Clementine, but I don't think they used our numbers. Yeah, that was a pretty bad ding on one of the mirrors uh, for the telescope. Um, but uh, yeah, because I mean, it's so such incredible pictures that come out from it. I was just curious why why you don't see any of the effects. Well, you get SEU effects for sure. But what you do, I was trying to show you with that uh, picture of Andromeda Galaxy, uh, what they, even with that one, what they do is they take a picture a little later, a little later, a little, and they average like 10 to 20, you know, hundreds of pictures you average them together and all those little bits and things go away that's that's the simplest thing to do so it's a matter of stacking a lot of uh, good pictures yeah oh, okay and you do electric you do some form of stacking to get rid of that crap and that and it goes away and of course as i was trying to tell you that uh, uh, what we do sometimes is we use fly three computers and then they vote and um so you take a picture and you get, you know, you got three different pictures, you compare them and uh, same as stacking, only it's uh, an instant in time. Uh, thank you. Uh, okay, so uh, Dr. Gary was saying that like J JWST, they actually put a major effort, try to uh, study project. So they yeah. probably also doing the study over there. Well, I did, I did a lot on that. And oh, okay. yeah, and that's why why I only retired in January. I was still working on it through January. Very interesting. That's the most recent. Yeah, and so no, that's uh, the Jovian radiation model. They they they've had me keep updating that and and modifying and stuff with the Juno data and everything like that. And as the Juno data comes in, we've been trying to use it. I tried to get particle detectors on there, but uh, they wouldn't do it. But um, 
working with uh, APL, uh, some of their instruments and some of the imaging instruments have noise that you can use that we use to back out uh, some of the spectrum at high energies. Okay. Uh, I think it's already touching. Oh, you're recording again. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, I think Bree asked a question. Bree, can you speak up? Uh, yes. Uh, hi, Dr. Uh, Garrett. Um, I was interested to uh, get that uh, $2 uh, document that you were talking about that AIAA wouldn't print. And uh, maybe if I could also email you uh, regarding like papers. Uh, if, if, if you had an email or something, I, I may, might be able to contact well, I, I think I, uh, Ken has my email. Okay. I will let him discreetly distribute it. I don't want to put it up on the screen or anything. Anyway. Okay. Um, yeah, right. Well, maybe I could talk to him after. Um, and um, I had a had a, another question. So I, I wanted to see uh, the slide you had, you put towards the end, you put two references and I was trying to write them down, but it went by really fast. Well, I, I think he's recorded all this, so they should, you should be able to start. Okay, when, when he yeah. posted, I guess. Recorded, yes. Okay. It will be posted tonight or tomorrow. Uh, and uh, the problem, the problem with the references is they are dated. I haven't, haven't updated. I've, I taught, I've taught this for a number of years, uh, two or three times a year at JPL and all the J, all, all the NASA facilities and stuff. And then several, several organizations have copied every one of my slides. <laughs> so you, you will have a shot at seeing them again. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, and then also, uh, I was wondering, um, we, you talked about um, certain like erosions of the front materials of spacecraft. And then um, I was wondering, uh, you, you specifically mentioned metals, but does, does glass also erode like similarly? And uh, yeah. No, but now that's going to be my next talk. <laughs> okay. Oh, but, okay. Uh, but yeah, the basically uh, when you bring surfaces below about eight below eight hundred kilometers, everything is uh, oxygen erosion is dominant issue, and uh, it's a it's a real mess. You, what you find is that the back of the satellite's all crudded up, all kinds of outgassing and stuff like that. And the front is pristine, clean metal <laughs> and glass. Glass is, glass is pretty is impervious. And, uh, and some metals like silver and, and cesium, if I remember. I think cesium is included, but silver will go right away. And they like to use silver for uh, solar array things. I got in a big argument with the Japanese on that Midori thing because the, uh, it turns out that they, they used silver wiring. Silver is very good conductor, so they like to use that for the solar ray wire, and it will actually be eaten away. Because silver forms a uh, tarnish, and that tarnish flakes off. Oh, interesting, interesting. And then also for the uh, uh, kind of like when you're talking about the electronic, um, the heavy ions, especially, I, I believe uh, the heavy ions. What was what we were concerned with regarding the uh, displacement damage? Yes. Um, so, uh, I am, was wondering about, uh, making some kind of like analog circuit that, um, try to store, uh, some, some, some bits in, um, some bytes in, in etched glass. And I, I know it's not exactly the, the same, might not be the same type of displacement damage, but do you, would, would you, do you think maybe like, uh, 
if if there was like etched glass with like very tiny etchings like that that those ions could it depends very much on the glass it turns out to se several of the optical manufacturers i have some handbooks for example where they list what the radiation damage is because glass will darken and depending on the comp the uh in the trace elements they put in there will become radioactive and so you have to be very careful about the glass that you use because of the uh, possibility of uh, self-radiate becoming radioactive and darkening Marketing is a real problem in glasses. Okay, okay, great. Thank you, thank you so much. Uh, uh, Pratik asked a question about the thermal runaway with lithium batteries, and uh, he asked if you could share some experience across different missions in different batteries based upon the environment and the ways to mitigate. Now, let me let me understand the question. Worried Bat about batteries? Bat yes. Because he started mentioning, say, uh, there might be some thermal runaway pro uh, problem with lithium batteries. Uh, is, is there any uh, issues with uh, uh, batteries in, in spacecraft across uh, different missions due to the environment? If so, how to mitigate? Well, the only things I know about batteries, because we had it happen on Clementine, is that uh, most batteries, if you discharge them, um, you have a real problem with they won't recharge if you drive the charge down too far. And uh, we flew lithium hydrogen batteries on uh, on Clementine, and um, they forgot to turn the uh, solar turn the batteries off when we went into eclipse, and the batteries went down to zero, and the satellite died <laughs> right off the bat. And I was informed in the middle of the night that I needed to call the, the, the JPL director to inform him that JPL had forgotten to turn the satellite off, so we killed it. Fortunately, nickel hydrogen batteries don't have that problem. And so when they came back into the light, the satellite charged right back up, and we had a perfect mission on that in that respect. <laughs> so, no, batteries, uh, the biggest things that I know about is that, is that most batteries, if you go below a certain level of charging, you, you can't recover them. You have to be very careful about that. I know that um, latch up can cause that problem, burn out devices and short out the batteries. So you have to be careful about those kind of things. But other than that, I'm not aware of uh, uh, much about radiation damage. Micrometeoroids obviously would destroy a battery. And we've had that happen. We had that happen on Mariner 4. Apparently the battery got punctured by a micrometeoroid. That's oh. all. Okay, I, I see. Um, I personally have a, a question because you mentioned the bipolar junction. Uh, I think some of the chart you also mentioned CMOS. Did you see any uh, significant difference between the BJTs and uh, like a MOSFET or CMOS type of different device? Unfortunately, I get confused with all that. I had the list there. My my colleague Alan Johnston is my go-to person. We we usually present this together. <laughs> he goes into all that detail. I'm I do not the different part types. I, he gave me that list that listed the different part types and that that one chart and it lists which part types are sensitive to which effects. Remember the one I'm talking about? Oh, okay, I understand. Uh, and because this is related to my next, well, it's kind of not really related, but 
my next question was, you know, these days, you know, the company like TSMC, they are making even down to, you know, um, one nanometers, you know, this kind of uh, UV yeah. processing chips. And uh, then you're talking about this. Um, so do you think that the device, when it gets smaller and smaller, actually the one question is even go to like a quantum bit, qubits, but we don't want to get there. But just talking about if is this actually better, softer, or harder when you go to? Well, first uh, of all, it depends very much, obviously, on the device the device family that you're talking about. Okay. But I have a plot that I did not show. That okay. That was put together by the Galile by the European Galileo projects, and it shows that as we go smaller and smaller feature size, the failure rate, go, the sensitivity to the dose and microdose and stuff has gone up dramatically. And so oh. there is a significant limit on this currently uh, the, on the size of the device that you can make if you want to prevent uh, problems with uh, radiation damage. In fact, uh, I think it was uh, Wang. Uh, their servers were having a problem because they, they were getting single event upsets on the ground. Uh, they built them, the, the device sizes got small enough that they were having uh, massive single event upset effects. I mean, I can, if you want, I can try to pull the chart up, but it'll take a bit. Okay. You want me to pull it up? Well, if you have time. Kind of well, you just keep, keep asking and uh, I'll see what I can, see if I can okay. find it. <laughs> so okay. go ahead, more questions. Well, I mean, uh, there, there's a, as I mentioned, there's a question about quantum computing, quantum uh, qubit. Um, but, but I think this question is kind of obvious because right now the quantum computer is so huge. You know, uh, uh, they, they basically use Joseph Junction, you know, they need a very lab huge laboratory. I don't think that's actually applicable for space. But I can tell you, Dr. K, I did see a paper. Uh, I don't have it right now. They're actually talking about the radiation effect on quantum computers. So uh, I don't, uh, if you have any inputs or insight, you know, you're welcome to share. Um, well, first of all, let me see if I can share this with you. Okay. Uh, this isn't quite what you asked, but I do have the chart. I know where it is now, but anyway, let's see if I can, uh, where am I? I don't see, where's the, trying to find, there I am, there we are, okay. And so I'm going to see if I can share. See if I can share this. Well, you're putting an answer to the question from BK. BK is asking when is the next session. Uh, this will work out with Dr. Garrett uh, for the schedule. So we'll come up with the number two, lecture number two. Can you uh, see this? Yes, yeah, this is very interesting. <laughs> That, that's part, that's one part of the answer. I'll have to, so you, you got that, you take a screen dump. <laughs> that's why I did. Okay, let me see if I can find the other one real quick. I know where it is, it's gonna take me a second. Okay, let me see, uh, putting it together, I think that's where it is, let me see. It's going to take a moment. Take easy. Well, go ahead. Do you have any more questions? Uh, I think that it is. Uh, I think we're more toward the end. Um, 
Free. If you want to ask a question, you can speak up. Oh, uh, thank you. Uh, I have one more question. Um, I was wondering if there are facilities, maybe by JPL or someone else that you know, that small, small uh, companies uh, trying to make small, small sets um, can maybe like uh, rent their facilities and uh, to to test about these like kind of like electrical like space environment effects, or if it is it better to just um, like build my own um, our own uh, test equipment using like old like uh, CRT monitors or something? Um, yeah. Well, I have a better suggestion for you. You go get your latest smoke detector, put take out the americium source and plop it down in your device, and that'll do lots of single event upsets. Oh, okay. And did you say it's a, a cesium source or what kind of? Americium. Americium? Yeah, that's the radiation source in the smoke detectors. Oh, okay. And but... you, don't know ex you don't know exactly what heavy ion is doing, but it's certainly lots of heavy ions. And I was always taught that, 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 that that's an easy thing to do. Just be very careful in, in what you do. But you lay that right on top of the device and it'll flip like hell. Anyway, do you see, uh, Ken, do you see this? You have to also remember that it depends on the, the, the type of device, the, you know, with CMOS, dipole, whatever it is. You have to look very carefully. Some of the some of them don't have uh, become radiation hardened as you make them smaller. Others become much more, as we saw become much more sensitive. See, it it's it has to be tested. The bottom line is you have to test, 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 test. That's all you can do, and uh, or you can just fly it and see what happens. And uh, that that's the cheapest answer. But of course, then you run the risk of failure. But that's life. I mean, that's unfortunately this. That's what this business is all about. The big thing is people. You don't want to endanger your people, so you make everything redundant. JPL is very good at making uh, uh, redundancy or different uh, a system several different types of redundancy. You don't use the same. You don't fly three radios that are exactly the same. You fly different ways of communicating. And uh, you do functional redundancy rather than uh, part redundancy. Yeah, and then you're right about this uh, radiation uh, minimum, uh, you know, after the Apollo missions, you know, and they mentioned about, uh, that, that was a very interesting part. You say somebody uh, uh, wrote something about the description if uh, astronaut was uh, uh, in the radiation peak and uh, they, they uh, struggle, you know, maybe die at the end, something like that. You say somebody wrote something or, or uh, make a movie out of it or something. Yeah. Well, what, well, what I was trying to get at is you need to, you need after every flight, you need to, to actively report all the different problems you had, all the different successes you had, and a lot of industry will not do that. They don't want you to know why their satellite failed. They don't want you to know. Uh, what what uh, success they got? Um, the Tin Whiskers is an excellent example of that, uh, where they, uh, there was a lot of confusion over device failures, and they thought it was spacecraft charging. It turned out it was simply the tin that you use in the solder uh, grows in the electric field, and it it grows from positive to negative, whatever it is. And shorts things out, wires up to I think a half an inch long, and uh, just strange things. You have to test all this stuff. 
So do you think, you know, in the semiconductor, you know, other than just, uh, you know, the, the cyclography and making it, there is also a packaging process. Do you think this packaging might help or kind of uh, a little bit uh, for the radiation process? Well, I, I have some stories I'll tell you privately, but <laughs> the bottom, bottom line is the process of making these things, uh, rat hard parts in particular, is uh, not what it seems and putting satellites together is not what it seems no satellite is put together by the way they were told to put it together all satellites whether it's the so stitching of the thermal blankets to the soldering of a part each one is unique to the person who did it and that satellite is unique to that facility at that moment in time and it's very unless you build lots of them in a line like they do with SpaceX, you're not going to get um, repeatability. JPL satellites are all handmade, and I mean literally handmade, and uh, that makes them extremely useful and valuable. But it also means that replicating them is not quite as straightforward as you would, you would want. So it's the process that uh, that is is equally important. And the problem is the process is dependent on people, and people do things they didn't tell you about. Um, I'll give you an example on the SCAFA satellite. They uh, put uh, surface uh, samples on there. And when they sewed the blankets on, some of the blanket edges stuck up. And so when the thing spun around in the sun, uh, the shadow, you didn't know where the shadow was exactly because the little edge was sticking up. It would affect things. I have a yeah. quick question on the uh, on the uh, you mentioned earlier about the uh, the effect that uh, silver uh, was degraded by the uh, oxygen uh, radicals in uh, low Earth orbit, and that brings to mind now uh, this increasing use of uh, the lead free solders, which which actually includes silver uh, in satellites. Is there is is there a, the use of the silver? For, I mean, yeah, the, uh, lead -free a, I believe I do believe there's a concern about that that's been mentioned. But typically the solder is inside. You, you don't use the solder on the outside. And uh, typically, unless you're making CubeSats and CubeSats, I don't know what they do. Uh, to answer your question, I think that uh, there, at some point, I do remember some discussion, somebody asked about the silver and the solder, uh, but the biggest problem was the, tin, was the tin and the tin whiskers in the solder. And uh, as they were trying to find substitutes. But I, beyond that, I don't know. I just know that uh, uh, silver wires, you don't want them on the outside at low altitudes. So so satellites are, are currently being used with the uh, lead-free solder, as far as you know, or, or do they well, revert back know. to it? I have, no, I have no idea. It's the tin that you don't want in the solder. Well, that's in, that's also in the uh, in, in the lead solder, uh, but so that's a common, would be a common problem. Yeah, it is a common problem and that's what what basically what happens is the, uh, the the tin migrates and it forms little wires of hair it forms hair on the solder joint right in the electric fields but in terms of in terms of substituting the lead out of the solder that that doesn't necessarily impact uh, I don't know I've never, I, I, you you're not aware of that okay Okay, uh, personally, I have tons more questions. This is very exciting, but uh, 
but because the library is closing, I, we need some time to wrap up here. Uh, so any further question online? Yeah, would you do me a favor and save the chat and send it to me? Okay, I will do, we'll do, definitely, yes. Yeah, we got many positive comments. Everybody very uh, excited and say thank you so much. It's a wonderful lecture. Well, thank you. Anyway, I've got, uh, we'll talk about doing some more sometime soon. <laughs> yeah, you see, VK already asked, you know, uh, can't wait for your next one. <laughs> well, anyway, you wore me out today. Okay. This is, uh, now you are, uh, uh, hopefully you are not, uh, uh, you know, have lots of uh, charging on your your body. You need to <laughs> recharge. You need to touch the ground and uh, discharge and get rest. Okay. All right. Well, you ready to ready to shut it down? Yes. Uh, let me.